Hey, fellow tennis nerds, I hope all is well. I'm back with a favorite guest of yours. I can see it in the data. I can hear it from your comments. Nikola Racic from Intuitive Tennis. He's a very popular guest, and for good reason. He makes some excellent coaching content and some fun other stuff, which we will get into today, the Monday morning rant and so on. But first of all, how are you, Nikola? I'm doing great. Thank you, Jonas, for having me on for the third time, because last time... I was on with you, we had horrible construction noise in the apartment next to me and with the stop, uh, the podcast, it was just too difficult to concentrate. So yeah. I'm hoping that there's no noise today because they're still not done. They're still doing construction, but I, I don't hear anything. I think we're going to be good. And if not, we're going to power through this time. Fingers crossed. Yeah, that's good. I like your That's the spirit of a tennis player, right? We're powering through, you know, you Absolutely. have to go through the challenges. Yes. The mental challenges, you just got to. Figure, figure out a way how to get through it, you know? Yeah. So I was uh, doing in the intro, I said about your Monday morning rant, which I mean, I'm a big fan of, of Bill Burr and many other comedians, of course, but it's about like a, a fun rant. And, and uh, mm -hmm. what was this Monday rant? Because we're in US Open week. Let me think. Now you, now you, now you stumped me already. Let's see. Yeah, Hold I on. Like I make so much I like content. That. I make daily content. Let me think. What was the... I know. The, you know, what was it? Tell me. Because I actually was, don't... Uh, predictions US Open and the well, farewell to Sokin Isner. Actually, that wasn't a rant. See, that because I released that on a Sunday, I think. So that actually wasn't a rant. It was just predictions. But the one before that was, I think when I talked about equal prize money. Yeah. That was the rant uh, from before. before. But the whole thing with the rant, um, I can tell you, how I got the idea about that and, and, and why I'm doing that. Um, so one of my biggest hobbies is looking at tennis results and looking at rankings. Even when I was, when I was a little boy in Germany, I would read the German tennis magazine and they had rankings in there. They had results. And man, I would study that. Like it was just a passion of mine. And there's a story that my parents told like hundreds of times. They think it's the funniest story ever where. They would quiz me on the rankings and ask me what's this guy ranked or whatever. And there was this one time where it was a big family gathering. Every, everybody was there, aunts, uncles, grandparents. And uh, I was maybe 10 years old or something like that. And they tested me in front of everybody. They go, they started with a few easy ones, like what's Becker's ranking? And I got it right. And then it's like, what's Edberg's ranking? And I got that right. And then they go, what's Stenmark's ranking? And I wouldn't know because I never heard that name before. And I just made up a ranking. I said like a 69 or something like that. And everybody started cracking up, laughing like crazy because they picked out some famous Swedish skier that wasn't even a tennis player. And um, they got me. So I heard that story too many times. But so I always was super interested in, in tennis results rankings. And then when the internet came about, I started doing this daily ritual of looking at futures on both men and women. I started looking at the challenger level or the women's ITF, like the 100,000, 50,000 tournaments. And I started looking at the WTA and ATP tournaments on a daily basis and looking at the results all the way from the qualies, the main draw. And it's something that I've always done. Um, and I do it to this day and I can go super deep into it and spend like hours 
just looking at results. And it's actually very valuable because I think um, results can tell you a lot about a player. It can give you a lot of insight into a player, maybe more so than a rating or a ranking because you can estimate the current form. And if you look at the results, uh, you get a pretty accurate um, level of the player in your head. And so, um, for example, I'll just give you an example. Like recently, I was like just scrolling through results, and all of a sudden, I saw the name Robin Haze in the qualies somewhere. And I'm like, wow, wait, wait a second. I thought this guy was retired. You know, the Dutch guy, Robin Haze. Yeah. yeah. A tour player for many years. And I started looking. I didn't know he was still on tour because he's older. He's almost 40. And I started looking at his results this year. And then I started looking at his results from last year. So I can kind of fall into a rabbit hole that way and spend a lot of time doing that. And so I have a lot of opinions in my head, just like conversations with myself as I'm looking at these results. And I thought, you know what, like, why don't I like just talk about this publicly? And that's how the idea started about Monday morning rants. And when I first started, it was basically, um, I didn't want to bore people with challenger results, but I wanted to go through like all the WTA tournaments and all the ATP tournaments and talk about the draws in each tournament. And that's what I did in the, in the very beginning of the Monday morning rant. And the reception wasn't great. You know, I didn't really do that well. And I was talking to my mom, who's like my biggest coach when it comes to YouTube, my mom and my daughter, they, I always ask them, you know, if I'm doing something that I'm, unsure if it's working. I asked them what they think about it. So my mom had this idea. It was a very simple idea. She's like, you know what? Why don't you just, why don't you just do it when there's something like important going on? And so that's what I did. I switched it where it wasn't every Monday, but it was only when there's something worth talking about on a grander scale, because at the end of the day, as you know, there's a lot of weeks in the calendar where it's not a lot of not a lot going on. A lot of the big names are not playing. And I'm personally super interested in, in those weeks, but the general public is not. So I think uh, when I made that switch to talking about, I mean, doing the Monday morning rant when there was big things going on, all of a sudden, like it clicked right away. I did one after um, Djokovic won the French Open and that video blew up. Um, got like close to a thousand comments. Then I did another one after Alcaraz won Wimbledon and same thing. Video got so much engagement, close to a thousand comments. Maybe it's over a thousand now. And those videos did well. So, um, what I'm going to do from now on, uh, is only do a Monday morning rant when there's really something exciting going on in the world of tennis on a weekly basis. I think it's just simply too boring, you know, even though there were some people that liked it, but I think for the general audience, it was just too boring. Yeah, I, I, I've tried similar uh, formats, like doing it weekly, you know, and, and it's, it's tough to get engagement because like some, the, the average tennis week is really just super exciting for the, for the mega nerds. I mean, even bigger than the tennis nerds. You, you I'm need the to tennis really... nerd too. Yeah. yeah and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but like, I'm just like you, I'm a tennis yeah. nerd. Okay. So we're, we're brothers that way. We're both nerds. Exactly. It's a good, good community of people. And that's yes. why I love talking tennis with, with like-minded people, because I, I, I remember when I was a kid, I was watching like also the rankings like you in a way and, mm -hmm. and, you know, study, I mean, Stefan Edberg was my uh, idol growing up. Right. So it's like in that era, Edberg, Becker, 
keeping track of the rankings. I was yeah. air swinging around the living room, uh, you know, French Open on the TV. So mm -hmm. it was a, it was a, that's how you grew up. So you're kind of a bit brainwashed, you know, to, to do Absolutely. that in a way, right? Yeah. But you know what I heard? Somebody told me that they saw, they saw uh, Roger Federer on a computer looking at futures results. Going a few years back when Federer was still like in the top five. Somebody saw him, he was checking out futures results. So this is like a, a thing that's just fun, you know? It's just fun to see what's going on in a, in a tennis world, in a let's call it professional tennis world. It's just, I think a lot of people do that actually, so. Yeah, and I, I think there's a point to it. I also start to understand like how important that is for the players as well. Like a lot of the pro players, they, they keep track like who's coming from like below, who is doing well, like yes. in the same kind of category of player, whether it's top 10 or top 100 or top 1,000, you know? So it's like, they want to keep up to date also. Like, what is this guy doing? How is he playing? Uh, partly because it helps them if they have a match against them, but it's also because they're curious and they love tennis, right? Most most players really love tennis overall, I would say. Well, that, I agree with you 100%. But like I said earlier, to me, it's the most revealing thing about the player, and that is the results. A lot more revealing than ratings and to some extent even rankings. The results show the momentum of a player. So I remember a few years back, um, this player called Carreno Busta, you know him, right? Spanish guy. The guy was exploding through the future circuit, like winning one future after another. And you just look at the results and you're like, okay, like if this guy is not gonna be in the top 50 or top 20 or whatever, I don't know who will because you look at the results and the guy's winning one future after another the whole year. And eventually he started playing challengers, started winning those. Uh, very similar with Davidenko back in the day who, Davidenko grew up um, in the same state in Germany where I grew up in Westfalen. And he played a lot of the tournaments that I played. And there were several occasions where I almost played against him. Uh, that was like one match away, I ended up losing. And then almost, I, I wish I would have played against him because he was like one of the most unbelievable players that I've ever seen. But the same thing happened with him. He like was playing and all of a sudden he just started winning at these lower levels, like just blowing through the lower levels. And it was inevitable. You can just see that th this guy was going to make it. So that's what I mean. Like when you look at the results, you see the momentum of a player and it's, uh, it's super important to, to look at that. Yeah. And it's, it's like a, I mean, tennis is such a confidence game, right? So if you see yes. a guy who's racking up wins in futures, okay, it's futures, it's not ATP tournaments, but if he can keep that momentum going, he will soon start doing the similar patterns in challenger, yes. maybe losing semi, let me losing finals, yes. but, and then he builds up that and that keeps like a snowball effect, right? So this is what players do. That's why you have yes. to keep track from a lower level, see how they actually rolled through draws and, and well, like maybe they don't lose a set. It's a good sign of confidence and and superiority right well also you you can you can see the scores too and the scores can be revealing how are they losing maybe if you see a guy losing like seven six six one or if you see a guy win the first set losing the second set seven six and losing easy on the third and if that you see a pattern there you see there's some maybe uh, some mental issues also you can see negative trends and results you know where guys are in a slump but if i go back to davidenko and I do think you have the best tennis podcast in our niche and I hate to mention another podcast. So I apologize for this, but on the functional tennis podcast, um, Fabio interviewed Davidenko and Davidenko said, 
that when he was going through that period where he was transitioning from uh, the Challenger circuit to the ATP circuit, because I think he played a tournament somewhere and went deep into the semis or the final, and all of a sudden he was on the ATP tour, he broke in the top 100 and it was over from then, right? But he said that there was absolutely, absolutely no difference in his level or the way he played when he was on the Challenger circuit uh, compared to the way he played on the ATP circuit. So it's all this little switch mentally that was turned on. You can call it confidence. There's probably other factors there, but that's what tennis at that level is all about. It's the, the subtleties of it are crazy. Um, you can't really see it either. Uh, this is happening inside the player's mind. And it's just insane how players can just turn it on and all of, all of a sudden the results become much better. Yeah, and it's interesting also, like some players, I talked to Karu like the other week, like he had said he had a mental block in ch on challenger level. Like he was winning futures, yeah. but then he got up to challenger. He felt like that was a big step without, okay. you know, even considering maybe the, the actual level, he was just in the head more. Like this this is much better, the much better players, highly yes. more, more higher ranked, stuff like that. And I think if you have that mental block, whether you go from futures to challengers to challengers to ATP or WTA, whatever, um, that's that's tough then. Like that block is big. Like if you have that block, even if it's not in your game, it's in your head and then it can really be a problem, right? For you. There are so many challenges when you play tennis at the high level. Um, there are so many things that can prevent you from maximizing your potential. Like I've done many videos on, on explaining why you perform better in practice compared to a match. And one thing that I used to do, which kind of relates to what I was talking about in the beginning, studying the results is I used to put my opponent on a pedestal. In other words, I had absolutely no problem beating somebody that was um, my ranking or slightly above or ranked beneath me, absolutely no problem. Um, but if somebody was ranked a lot higher, let's say somebody was ranked like top 50 in Germany or top 100 in Germany in the men's rankings, I'd put that person on a pedestal and I would psych myself out and end up losing because of it. Now, the super weird thing would be that I would beat players, for example, who were um, ranked the same as me on many occasions. And then a few years later, you see that the player like in the top 300 in the world. So I do think there is a downside uh, to a player um, studying results too much and, and, and putting opponents level uh, above yours based on that, based on rankings or, or ratings or whatever it may be. I think it could be a big mental trap and that is overestimating your opponent. And um, I kind of stopped doing that when I went to college. Uh, Mel Purcell, my coach, he always, also used to play on tour. Um, he really talked to me about that problem because I did tell him about that. And he helped me a lot where I didn't care anymore, you know? I just took the actual match in present time and I didn't care what happened before so much. I didn't care about the previous results. I stopped worrying about that and that helped me tremendously and I was able to beat um, some really high-ranked players. So I wish I had that mindset early on when I had, you know, a lot of chances in juniors and stuff like that because if you talk about the mental game, you was talking about Karu. Um, all players have certain mental blocks that, you have to try to overcome somehow. You have to really work on them, identify them, and try to uh, get rid of them. Otherwise, it's going to be tough to maximize your potential, you know? Yeah, I've sent out a newsletter uh, 
I think it was yesterday about my I played a recent tournament. I haven't played a tournament in like three months, you know. So mm -hmm. I played an open and uh there were some like, you know, the top seed was 150 in the world three years ago, you know, so it was a high level tournament. And 150 to ATP. Yeah. What was his name? Uh, Enrique Lopez, Kike Lopez. He, Enrique he won Lopez. the Challengers 2019, yeah. Good that, player. Uh, beat, sounds familiar. That sounds familiar. Beat Curious uh, not so long ago. But, wow. Uh, and know, this guy was in the tournament that you played? Yes. yes. Well, what, what kind of tournament was this? Was it a prize money? It's like a prize money open Marbella here in Spain. See what I mean? This is the European. This is what I keep telling people. The level of play in Europe and the prize money tour is unbelievable. And then the club system is so high. But sorry to interrupt you. Keep going. Yeah, yeah no, no. But the, it, and so he was playing. It was there were there were the best guys in the region, and there was a guy who is I think nine hundred now. Uh, he's a he's a younger guy. Kiki is like thirty two, but I mean unbelievably high level, right? So, and uh, but this guy was coached by Al Almagro, the other gun, Andres yes. Fernandez, uh, coached by Almagro. So, so those two were the best guys. But then there were other very very strong players, but not like ATP ranked, um, and. I, I had to qualify, obviously, so I, I went through three qualifying rounds, and then I managed to qualify, and then I get like Andres Fernandez, who's like 980 in the in my first match, and obviously you're like, okay, this is a it's it's a joke, right? But um, so wait a second, you qualify for the main draw? Yeah, for this tournament. Yeah. Nice yeah. man. So you must be playing really well. Yeah, it's so uh, I'm playing. I'm playing more and more tournaments. I'm what was your score against this guy who was 900? You guess. I don't want to guess. I don't know. You tell me. Yeah, no, I I got ten points. I I hit oh, so you, completely. You lost Owen. Yeah, Owen. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look. That's like you know. We talked about this last time. Like, um, the 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 there's some difficulties when you know players who consider themselves more rec level play against players who are more at the competitive level. There's just a big gap there. You know, huge gap. It yeah. was a huge gap, and also mentally, that was what I wanted to get to because, like, I can if i play my best and you know really pushing myself maybe i can get a game from this guy i mean i've gotten games from guys who are mm -hmm. are like around the same ranking before but it's like mentally you're like and also the guys i played before were, were good players but they were more on like you know uh coaches you know like mm -hmm. tennis coaches who, who want to play a tournament they they play they can play good tennis but it's not they're not in the competitive circuit of any kind right mm -hmm. so you go from that and then you play a guy who's training every day playing high levels, 24 years old. Uh, every shot is like a super heavy top spin coming big. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like this guy. And he was on fire the whole tournament. So he beat the 150 ranked, previously 150 ranked player, 6-2-6-1 in the final. Oh, wow. So this That's guy amazing. was on fire. He lost like five games the whole tournament, right? Wow. So, and I was like, I told him, I was like, you're playing, like I played with guys who are 200, like just, you know, had a hit and, and uh -huh. played some games. I never played anyone who just plays with this kind of confidence, just like, just blasts, like every shot was just amazing, you know, and it, so, yeah. but no matter what, like what I wanted to get to was kind of, you have to go into, this was a, you know, a silly match because he's so much better than me, mm -hmm. but you should really go into every match uh, with the, and I like with your identity, play the tennis you play. And in chess, they have this interesting thing, like on certain, like online chess sites, they have this focus mode. So you remove the rankings because chess have rankings like, you know, uh, tennis. So like you're playing someone, but if you put focus mode, you don't see the opponent's ranking or title. So I'm a title player, like meaning that I'm a tour player in, in chess. I would be somewhat tour player, lo lower level tour player. Um, but 
if you remove the rankings, you you don't get this block in your head where you're, oh, I'm playing a grandmaster. You know, I'm playing someone who is going to beat me 100 out of 100. <laughs> and you will always play better. Like, always. Like, if you check the... I, I'm, I'm sure if they check stats, if you use that focus mode where you don't see the opponent's ranking and title, then you will play better, for sure. Because the, it kind of puts, like, I'm going to lose this match no matter what I'm doing, right? So. It's true. Like, Mike Tyson said once that most of the guys that he fought lost before even stepping into the ring. This is a real thing in tennis, too. Uh, players who face, let's call it the big, you know, the big three. Of, there's no more big three. But players that are, let's say, like top 10 or top five in the world where they mentally psych themselves out and they lose that match prior to even stepping on the court. Now, I do want to add that sometimes there's a discrepancy in level where... If you have somebody play Djokovic or, or Alcaraz, for example, there's just, in some cases, too much of a discrepancy there, right? So there's literally very small chance that the other person can win who's ranked lower. But having said that, even though these players would probably lose anyway, they lose even prior to stepping on the match court. And this is true across all levels. And this is why I keep telling players, even at the rec level, that don't put your opponent on a pedestal, you know, when you're facing somebody who maybe has a little bit higher rating than you or whatever. Just play the match in real time. Maybe scout your opponent. Um, try to find some flaws in the warm-up and just play tennis in real time and play your best. And like you said, that's very interesting uh, the way you compared it to chess. I 100% agree. I do think that you're always going to play better. Um, if you're not so concerned about uh, the level of your opponent. Yeah, I think so. And I, I, um, I mean, in my case, it was too much, right? But let's say I played someone who was lower level than him and I would have, you know, it might have given me better chances. This case was, it was one of those, there a, was a famous study, I think we talked about it on the phone when our connection broke down last time, where people think they can beat a pro, right? So we talked about that <laughs> briefly and and... In this case, playing this guy, I met him yesterday again when I was playing uh, side of, uh, on the side. This guy is just too good. Like there's, I, I cannot reach up to his level. He's like, he's playing, he's going to also be, if he keeps playing like this, he's going to be 200, you know, I'm sure. I mean, if not, right. I mean, this guy has huge potential in my right. opinion. Uh, and also if you're coached by Almagro at some point, you know, you, they know you're, you're, you're good. You know, you're going to be course. a good player. Of course. I still 24, but he has financial, I think, issues to to keep like playing and traveling, and that that's mainly the issue. That's right? tough. So, that's really tough. Yeah, it's tough. But but I'm just saying, like, when you're playing a guy like that and going from like a club, a coach who's good, but you can beat him, you know, and you're playing a level match, and then you go to a guy who plays on pro level, whether it's a lower level pro, pro level or a higher pro level, there's no chance in hell I'm beating this guy. Like, there's no. Ch I mean, sadly, it's how it is. You know, it's physics. This guy's played tennis. Yeah. Since he, came out of his mother's womb, right? <laughs> and, right. And, and right. everything is so professional. And he was also, and what I liked about his game uh, and, and how he did the match, I mean, he could see that, okay, I'm going to beat this guy. He's, he's not a, a pro player. He could see that after five seconds, right? But he played the match full on, no giving me anything free. There was of no, course. I had to win every point. So every, he's super focused. Vamos, you know, he's not, he's treating me like I would be, any pro on the on the tour, which which I liked, I prefer that than someone coming in like, okay, hey, I'm gonna, you know, have some fun today because who cares? I win six one six one or six one. You know, he, he was playing every point super professional. I like that, so I was like really impressed. Right. Yeah.
and that you did that impressive. every match. You know? That's very impressive. I mean, that's what you got to do. You know, at that level, you got to play play every point. If you don't, there's going to be problems. It's a high intensity game, and you got to you got to bring it. Um, and you'll find that, like, see, when players are forced to play against somebody else that has there where there's a discrepancy in level. What I've seen is that players just want to get off the court as quickly as possible because sometimes it happens when somebody gets a wild card or especially at the at the prize money level, there's a lot of like lower level players in the first rounds. And one of my friends who was top 200 in the world, um, I talked to him about this one time and he said, and these matches are actually very bad for your level because think about it. When somebody of that caliber, like what you're talking about, 200 in the world or my friend, was 200 and then when they play somebody who's more rec level they're never going to be able to play their normal level so what they're going to try to do is go on the court and win 6-0-6-0 as fast as possible and just get off the court because the longer they stay on the court with someone like that because there's no flow in the match there's no rhythm there's no long rallies they can actually mess up their game a little bit where they play maybe a little bit worse the next match so they just want to get get it over with as, as fast as possible they're going to be super serious. There's not going to be any messing about, uh, joking around, giving up, giving away free points. Um, and yeah, that's what you're going to see. Yeah, and I think it's it's good uh, learning because I discussed this with my friends who are tennis coaches as well, and they have a a student who's very good. Like he's a very like promising player, and he has this tendency sometimes if he plays someone like he's 15, 16, right? Mm-hmm. If he plays someone that he should beat, that he's a little bit toying. Like he's a young, yeah, he's a teenager, right? So. Mm-hmm. That he want, he kind of gives away a few points. It's like mm, I'm, I was supposed to be nice today. I mean, who cares? You know, I'm gonna win. And they they got pretty pissed at that. They don't like that attitude. They want to have like a professional academy. So they believe like if you play someone who are two levels weaker, three levels weaker, whatever, go in, just win six love, six love, and leave the court. Like that's it. Like you sh- you should win. Play every point the same way you play it against someone your own level or higher, right? And I think yes. that makes some sense. Yeah. So if you watch the match between Emma and Shamir on my channel, I told Emma prior to the match, I want you to try to get a golden set. I want you to try to win every single point. And so that in itself is going to give you a little bit of pressure. It's going to give you some mental hurdles to overcome because if you go into a match like that, wanting to win O and O and wanting to win every single point, you're going to get a little bit of pressure, actually. Even though you know you, if you don't go in there with pressure, you might win 0-0, but you also might win 1-1, on right? But if you go into that match with the goal of not losing points, you're going to feel a little bit of tension because of the pressure that you created for yourself. And now this type of match can be a little bit more valuable. And that's what she did. She played Shamir, and she, I think, lost a total of like 10 points or something like that. She won 8-0. Um... So in that aspect, it was a little bit of a benefit to her. But like I said, generally speaking, uh, those type of matches uh, for the good player are actually not good for them. The best thing, really generally speaking in tennis, if you play players who are around your level, where where the discrepancy is not so big, anytime you have a huge discrepancy in level, whether you're playing somebody that's much better than you or much worse than you, the level of the match is going to be very poor. In other words, there's not going to be a lot of rhythm, not going to be a lot of rallies. So the level is going to be poor and you're not going to benefit so much from that. But when you play somebody that's closer to your level 
from a mental standpoint, there's going to be a lot more pressure because usually when you play somebody where the outcome is very predictable, there's going to be less pressure, right? But when you play someone where the outcome is unpredictable, you're going to feel more pressure. So you're going to work on your mental game. And also generally the level of the match will be better when you play somebody closer to your level. So it, a lot of people always ask me, Nick, uh, you know, what type of opponent should I play? And people often want to play players who are better than them. That's generally true for across any levels, junior level, recreational level. I tell them it's actually, uh, it's not the best for you. You got to play players that are close to your level. And then as you get better, you keep doing the same thing. And that's going to ultimately be the biggest benefit. Yeah, I think that is the whole importance with like your uh, NTRP system where you have tournament, like you have a league, uh, like NTRP 4.5 or whatever. Like mm -hmm. it, you should play players within your NTRP, your level, your UTR, because I agree, like if you're playing someone much better, you're not going to get many points. You're no. going to get demotivated. You're going to feel like a shit player. It, it, there's no good coming out of it. Like there, there's, I mean, in my opinion, zero good. Like it's not, a, it could be fun. Like, okay, hey, hey, this guy is so good. Like if you play someone who's 200 in the world, it's fun to know how good they are because they are incredibly good, right? A serve, mm -hmm. everything is good. But besides that, there's no point. You're just going to feel worse about your game. And also tennis is the most fun when it's a fight. Like it's the most fun when it it's is. an even match. It, it is. That is tennis. You know, tennis is not fun when it's six love, six one. Even if it's someone who's slightly lower having a bad day, it's not that much fun, you know? No, it's not. I agree 100%. And um, to further expound on that, there's a lot of serious tennis players who make tournament choices, especially in juniors, where they want to skip levels. And they think that if they play a better level, um, here in Florida, our USDA has levels eight through one. Like one would be like national level tournaments. And eight is like beginner level seven is like the entry level. And it's pretty good. And so some players, junior players, it's really the parents, not the actual kids themselves. But they put the kids in the tournaments that are much higher rated. So they put them in L5s or L4s. And they think that that in itself will make the kids better. But it it's not. And then there's also people who want to bypass everything and jump straight into the so-called tour, okay? And they want to start playing futures. And they think that somehow if they play futures, this is going to get their level better. It will not. You might actually get worse um, because you're not going through the stages of tennis where you're advancing from one level to the next. If you jump in a level that's way above you know, your level, you're not going to benefit anything. And in fact, you actually might get worse. So that's something that's important to, to know um, that you have to go step by step. I always talk about step by step, but even within tournament choices, you have to go step by step. If you were playing tournaments and you're losing first round, and you're not never winning any sets, you're simply playing a level that's too high. You're not going to benefit anything. You're going to continue to lose. So you got to go down a level and then go from there. I can give you... An example that a lot of the viewers are going to resonate with because there was one player that I was coaching who tried to play men's open tournaments here in Florida. These are like prize money tournaments, and they're pretty strong. They're not as strong as the tournaments in Europe, but they're pretty strong. You sometimes get um, D1 college players. You get some players that have ATP points. Very competitive. And this player was playing these tournaments and losing first round. 
every time. So I suggested, you know what? Let's go to the rec level. I want to see you win 5.0 tournaments. I want you to win three of those. When you win three of those, you go back to play men's open. And you started playing 5.0s, started losing in the 5.0s. So I said, listen, um, I want you to win three, four, fives tournaments. And then when he started playing the four fives, he ended up winning a lot of matches. And uh, I don't think he won three of them, but he did win some tournaments. And then we advanced back to the 5.0 level. So I think it's important to check yourself. Where are you level-wise, to be honest with yourself, and then go step-by-step. Step. you got to prove yourself in a game of tennis. Yeah, I 100% agree. I, I think it's good um, to be in that spot where if you're playing a 4-5 tournament, which is like high level of tennis comparative to all tennis players in the world. Like, I mean, right. if you're talking, you know, 5-5, five, 6-0, five, five, oh, it's the one percentile of, of tennis, right? So that's right. like sure. all players, right? right. Uh, but 4-5 but is kind of like a, you know, pretty good intermediate player or something. I don't know what it would call yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Um, that you need to then win almost every match, I feel like, before you feel like that you can move up a level. I think you should just, okay, I'm playing at 4-5, I'm winning every match. Like Then you're ready. You go go ahead. Exactly. Like I really feel like that's how it should be. And then you go to 5-0, then you should be winning every match, then you're a 5-5. You know, you can't be like, hey, I'm, I'm struggling around in a level. Uh, uh, we can be on the lower part of that level and struggle around, but you, to move up a level, you really need to show dominance on that level, I feel like. So otherwise, Absolutely. you're not really ready, right? But I don't know what it is with some people, and I have many, so many examples. I mean, some of them I probably shouldn't tell these stories because um, there could be some trouble if these people are listening. But I, I have so many examples of people that don't win at the 4.5 level, okay, NTRP. They don't win there. They lose plenty of matches, okay? But yet they decide to go play uh, on the Pro Tour Futures. Yeah, you know, because looks. some people, this they, 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 I don't know what it is. I really have no explanation. Um, maybe it's delusional, but it, it doesn't work. That's the results in, um, in nothing. You just go there and you, you start losing, and then after a year or two, you're like you're done with it, and you probably don't don't play tennis ever again. You're sick of it, so it's not fun, you know. But I think some people just like the idea of, you know. I guess they, in their head, they think they're playing pro tennis simply by entering these tournaments, you know? Because for people that don't know, um, anybody can enter a futures tournament qualities. You know, if the draw is um, full, you might not get in, but if there's spots in the draw, anybody can get in, you know? Any, yeah. Anybody, any no. age, yeah. So um, that's maybe something that should change but then again you don't want to like prevent somebody from having the ability to go up in the ranks but it's just too many too many experiences that i've seen maybe it's the fact that i live in southeast florida which is kind of a crazy tennis place anyway uh but there are so many of these people who were like so played on the so-called tour you know it's insane yeah and it's the sense. i don't know why we would want to push yourself into situations where you lose like like what well, that's not fun you know it's it's fun if you fight and it's an like if you give your all and you lose a tight match okay it yes. hurts but you suck it mm -hmm. up that's part of tennis right. you're a fighter you enjoyed it whether mm -hmm. it's a three five four five 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 level doesn't matter 
Right. But to go and lose and get one game or at the, even not even that sometimes like that's just that's pointless, completely pointless in my opinion. Like it's well, it has to be logical. Like I get a lot of parents that call me asking for advice about their kids, and um, this is just a little bit of a different situation where people think that if they move to Florida with their kids, that this is going to be somehow a magical uh, formula to for the kids to become really good at tennis. And it never is. So when it comes to that, um, as far as going to academies and stuff like that, it's really unnecessary if you are at a tennis club where there are kids who are better than your kid, right? So if you are at a club where unless your kid is dominating, there's absolutely no point in going anywhere else. And if you, if your kid is dominating, then maybe like go to like a local academy. And if the kid dominates that, then maybe it's time to go to like Everett or or IMG or whatever, any of those big academies. Maybe it's time to go. But un, un, until you have people who can beat you in your hometown, you really shouldn't worry about anything else. You shouldn't worry about the tour. You shouldn't worry about going to an academy. You just master that first. Become club champion. It's that simple. Put that trophy uh, in your house, win the club championship, and then go from there. After the club championship, you win the the district championship and you go step by step. That's what I keep preaching. You go step by step and that's really the only way to do it. That's really the only way, way anybody has ever done it. Everybody that you're watching on TV, they've gone they've gone through the pro- process. Um, nobody has started right away on the ATP tour. Everybody went through the process of playing juniors, and then going from from the small tournaments to the big tournaments gradually, and that's really the only way. I think you really in tennis have to, since it's such a difficult sport compared to, for example, pickleball or whatever. You know, it's like you have to, small this, you have to embrace the journey, right? Like you have to say, okay, if I am a recreational club level player, yeah, becoming better is very very difficult, but I like that it's difficult. It's a challenge. And you have to work on the fundamental skills of tennis all the time, whether that's footwork, all your different strokes, going to the net, hitting a slice, uh, match strategy, mental toughness, all these kind of components that everybody in tennis needs to work on. But but you just need to take it and see, like, who am I? I'm a 4-0, 4-5, whatever. And then just work with that and be happy with your 1% progress. Because like, like you said, there, there's no, and I think that's really good advice for most people listening, it's like, in tennis, there are definitely no shortcuts. There's not one single shortcut you're getting. Like, there's nothing for free. It's it's a very demanding sport that requires a lot from you to improve. Either you embrace that or you change sport pretty much. I, I think in, in general, like, it, it's a little bit how it is. To really love tennis, you need to love the struggle. It's kind of like that. It's true. masochistic sport, you know? It is. There's a lot of suffering. Yeah. There's a lot of suffering. And you just have to enjoy the process. And if you're in love with the idea of um, hitting the tennis ball, it's going to come natural to you. You're going to embrace it. You're going to love it. You're going to be passionate about it. And it's going to be a lifetime sport. It can be very, very addictive. Um, you know, the idea of getting better or the idea of winning matches, there's no better feeling in the world than winning a match where you didn't think you were going to win prior to going into the match where the outcome was 50-50, or maybe you beat somebody that was better than you, and, and you fight hard, you play that match, you end up winning. That feeling is so incredible. People get addicted to that feeling. 
and they want to they want to keep going and it never really dies that feeling and i don't care what tennis player you talk to everybody still somewhere in their head still has that that desire to play and get that feeling of winning uh, or the feeling of when you're in, in a match when you know you're about to win you know when you, you can just feel it and it's such an addictive thing that you want to do you want to do that for as long as possible and i see the passion in the players, for example, Emma, who I feature on my channel, um, she didn't play for many years and she always had that hunger inside and now she decided to give it another try. You see it on tour with uh, players like Spitalina or Wozniacki who have come back. And did I hear right that uh, Karu is going back on tour? Is that true? Yeah, he's actually playing a Futures right now. He's uh, in the quarterfinals against first seed now, I think tomorrow next match so 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 you see that like that desire to compete play and to win it, it's always there you know yeah so that to me is the beauty of tennis because it's an individual sport if you can find that if you can fall in love with that you will play tennis your whole life like i love the idea of hitting the tennis ball and um, working hard and grinding out there. Like I start every day by hitting some tennis balls. Um, I drop my daughter off at school. I go to a wall and I do like a hardcore wall session for 20 minutes. I hit against the wall like a maniac and it just makes me feel good. I don't know, I love it. I never wanna give that up. If, as long as my body is still somewhat okay, I, if I can do it, I'll, I'll continue doing this for the rest of my life. So. Can you teach this to other people? I don't think so. I don't think I can instill this passion into anyone. I'm sure I can motivate people with my videos or with my coaching. In person, I can motivate people to, to work hard, but can I instill a passion into someone? I do think the passion has to come from within. It has to be found by e each individual person. So that part is a little bit tough, but yeah, tennis is really, it's a beautiful thing, man. It's a beautiful sport. Yeah, I think so. That's why we're here. I mean, like it's uh, it's a joint passion and it's a strong passion, and you want the yes. passion to to spread and to grow. Uh, I think that is like the main purpose of what we're doing. What we're doing, in a way, yeah. uh, well, at least a very broad goal. But as you said, like you can't um, force someone to feel the way you feel. Like I always feel my best in my life when I'm playing tennis. Like I always feel really good yes. after, before, during I'm playing tennis matches can be tough like i i do that is a bit of a, like a you know uh you know you, you have to push yourself to play matches because it's going to be a nervousness you're going to be a little bit iffy if you lose you're going to be happy if you win it's a sacrifice you need to need to get into it sometimes you're in the mood for it sometimes you're not but i i think like i i wrote in my newsletter like playing matches is so important to enjoy tennis even more, I think. Like, it, it's to grow yes. that tennis. Like, you, you can enjoy just hitting the ball, but I think match play is when tennis really is at everything. You get tennis in full stereo, right? Well, it's the ultimate test of your abilities. So you can practice uh, the technique as much as you want. The actual match is going to be the ultimate test of your abilities. So I do think uh, the matches are incredibly important, but there are some people who... Either they don't like to compete or they don't care to compete, but I have seen some people who just simply like hitting the tennis ball. Uh, for example, a lot of people know Anna from my channel, who's currently recovering from foot surgery that she sustained um, during dancing, but she doesn't care one bit about playing matches. 
she doesn't care like i asked her many times if she was gonna join a local league like a ladies league and she doesn't care she just likes hitting the tennis ball so there are people like that but i think the ultimate experience in tennis is having a goal when you're training is going to make you train uh, more accurately is going to make you train harder possibly when you have a goal in mind for example you want to get your ntrp level up or you have a tournament in a month that you're trying to prepare for now your training becomes even more important even more serious and now you have the ultimate test uh, that competition that, that you are planning to play and if you end up doing well you're going to be so happy about it you're going to feel so good about yourself you're going to be on cloud nine but it's a big gamble because if you end up losing or a heartbreaker or you end up losing um you end up playing horrible and disappointing yourself now you get the other aspect of tennis that's not so nice you're dealing with negative emotions and also as these competitions are nearing closer some of them are going to create more pressure there's going to be different things happening at the competitions that are going to create pressures and pressures inside of you where you're going to feel so tense and uncomfortable the day of or maybe even the day before the match and i think this is why when you talk to former greats when they when you ask them whether they want their kids to be pros most of them will say no i think that's changed a little bit now because there's more um kids of former grades that play but especially back in the day if you ask a great player whether they want their kids to play that they're going to say no because they know that it's a roller coaster as much as great as that feeling is of winning the that feeling of losing and the pressures that you're feeling when you're competing are just as bad so it's like a really a roller coaster of emotions and it's very tough but you're willing yeah, to do yeah. it you're putting a gamble on it because you have the passion for it so that's what it comes down to yeah and i i'm a guy who completely understands like i used to just love hitting like i still love just hitting balls like i testing you know yeah. obviously since i've been testing rackets for so long like i i love testing a racket seeing how this tension works with this racket how this racket performs whether it's stiff yeah. whether it's you know soft or so i enjoy just hitting balls but the more I get into playing, you know, tournaments on the ITF seniors, well, you know, master store stuff, like I really enjoy like battling with myself. Like it's it's more with me more than the other guy. I don't care about the other guy. I'm not gonna go and talk about lines, although I've had enough discussions with people who are really crazy in my uh, short tennis career, you know. But I, I really like to have the battle with myself, you know, because I'm really right. hard on myself. So I want right. I want to have that like calm down, you know, work with on yourself. And if you have a tough loss, which, uh, you know, I've had as well, you, um, you, you work with it. But if you have a great win, like you play three hours and you win in three sets and you drive home, it, you feel like you're on clouds. Like you feel like, oh, shit, I, I got it done. That you know, feeling done. is addictive. Yeah. And it doesn't even have to be a tournament. It could be a practice match. In fact, like I played a, I played a match a few days ago, which is rare. I don't really play that many matches, but I played two sets against the 18 year old. And, um, it was in the middle of the day in the heat. And I did pretty well. And then afterwards, I had a pretty good feeling, you know? I was like thinking, you know what? That felt pretty good. So I can see like how you can start getting those feelings. And all of a sudden, you start thinking, oh, you know what? I'm going to come back. I'm back. Yeah. But of course, in my case, I'm too old. But um, that's how players end up making comebacks because they're like, they, they, they get that feeling again. And it's just an addictive thing. But I want to tell you one more thing that you were talking about, you know, the battle with yourself on a tennis court. I think that's one of the most beautiful things 
about tennis that it reveals your character, the game. And they asked Novak during the U.S. Open whether uh, the 36-year-old Novak would beat the 26-year-old Novak. And Novak jokingly said, yeah, this 36-year-old would destroy the 26-year-old. But then he was just kidding. He said, listen, every time I step on the match court, I'm playing against myself. It's an internal battle. And that is really what tennis is all about. It's playing against yourself. And for the people that know what I'm talking about, they know. Because if you're out there, it's really a battle against yourself. It's a beautiful battle, but it can be... Uh, I, I know people like who don't play so many tournaments or matches and they start playing and, and they lose matches they don't think they should lose. Like they, they, oh, I'm playing this pusher guy, whatever, you know, I heard this from friends. Like, I'm going to play this guy. I'm thinking, yeah, he should beat him 6-1 six six or whatever, you know. And then he loses the match because he, he cannot deal with this guy who just puts the ball back. And even though this guy has good strokes, he hits them out, right? Like... And uh, that happens. And then you hate yourself. So there's there's connection to like your self-worth and the sport you're doing. So if you love tennis and you, you feel like you suck at it because you lost to a guy you don't you don't think in your head you should lose to at least. Um that has like a connection to you, like, oh, you know. So that's something you have to battle as well, like that internal, like some people put them too close together, I feel like. And the same with, with chess that I mentioned before. It's like a person who loses at chess, because chess is like kind of like you know, mental game, but also like a little bit IQ. It's not really IQ, it's it's a game, but people have this perception of it. Then they feel like, oh, I'm a more stupid person or I'm a less valuable person because I lost to this guy. And that's something you have to get rid of to really enjoy the competition. And you really have to see it. And I think Novak put it really well. What you said is that it's a game against you. You don't, don't worry about the other guy. Don't worry about the crowd if there's crowds. Worry about how you're feeling, what you can improve. And if you lose, you just... Try to improve next time, like to win that battle against yourself next time. But I want to, I want to just kind of um, expand on that because Novak also said during the grass court season that a lot of these mental things in tennis is easier said than done. And he talked about the fact that he is by no means perfect mentally on a court. He goes through the same ups and downs that people at the recreational level go through, but he's able to snap out of it. That's the big difference. So he goes through the same challenges as everybody else, but he snaps out of it rather quickly where some, the, where some other players might let those negative emotions linger around a little bit longer. And it affects the, the match or some players who are maybe mentally weaker, they um, completely tap out and they end up losing the match. So, I mean, it can get quite complex what can trigger this. It can be many, many different things. The, uh, the mental game of tennis is very complex. We could talk about this for hours, but that's, I think, Novak's biggest strength, according to him, what he said himself, was that he's able to snap out of these bad things that can happen on a court. And he said it's impossible to not be affected by the bad things. You are going to be affected by that. It's just human nature, but it's how quickly you can get out of those states of minds. It's going to determine whether you can... You can win matches or not. But it's just yeah, a lot of times it's cliches. It's easier said than done. Don't get upset. Uh, think positive, you know. Uh, <laughs> hey, let me see you, uh, you know, uh, miss an easy volley on, on break point or uh, miss an overhead on set point. Let's see if you, it's, it's not so easy, you know, to control some of the stuff that happens on the court. 
bad bounce, bad call, you get cheated. Now, it could be a million things. Maybe it's loud noise around the court, annoying opponent. It could be a million things that are going to affect you in a bad way where you don't really have control over that. So it is natural for you to go through um, these, let's call them like changes of your, of your state of mind. It's like a roller coaster, but the players who are best mentally, and I think Novak Djokovic is the greatest player in the history of the game from the mental perspective, and he's able to snap out of it so quickly and refocus and, and end up winning winning matches that he should lose. He's the absolute best that I've ever seen. And there's many other ones that are great at it too, uh, but he's the best that I've ever seen. Yeah, I think the the numbers bear that out as well because it's um, you can also he's so visibly sometimes feeling like maybe Federer was more of a stone face. Rafa is also a little bit of a stone face. He's he you can see Rafa's emotions, but he always you know fights like a, he's a lion, right? But with with Djokovic, you can feel like now he's he's off. Like his Wimbledon final hits the the post to the net. Like he he goes makes these human things more than you know Roger and Rafa maybe. But then somehow, even if he does these things that, you know, throws the ball out of the stadium, whatever, yeah. he always finds a ways to come back to GOAT level, which which I find really remarkable. Because if right. you see anyone else kind of lose their shit, Nick Kyrgios, whoever, you know, they kind of stay often in that lose shit mode. While he always finds, like, he has some reset button internally where he just centers himself and then he just, okay, I'm going to pass this guy next shot, you know. Yeah. Well, that's a very difficult topic. Because I've observed some players at that super high level who can play well under adversity and they can also play really well when they behave poorly. But generally speaking, I would say that players who behave poorly, um, their performance tends to drop. I will say that's generally true. But in the case of Novak, I do think that these like outbursts um, help him to get everything out of his system and refocus. So if he's yelling at the box or if he throws a racket every now and then, it works for him in a positive way. Even though um, a lot of people see that as bad sportsmanship, I don't. I mean, he's doing it to himself. I, I don't really see that as bad sportsmanship. He's not like holding up the game like McEnroe used to do. Is it nice to do that? No, it's not nice. But um, it's just him. He's just being himself out there. So I never really looked at that negatively. On the other hand, I think Roger Federer, when he was younger, he identified his bad behavior as something that was affecting him negatively. So it wasn't like Djokovic or McEnroe. It was something that was making Federer play worse. And a lot of people don't know, but Federer was very misbehaved in juniors. He would throw the racket into the back fence indoors and rip a hole into the fence um, like many of us did in juniors, just knuckleheads misbehaving, throwing rackets, screaming. That was Federer in juniors. And then early on, on tour, it was very similar like that. He's actually kind of a hothead on the court. But I think he either identified this himself or a coach identified this as something that was holding him back. And then he completely flipped it around and became like Stefan Edberg out there, beat Sampras, completely emotionless, stoic. I think that worked in his favor. So when, when it comes to answering that question, there's no right or wrong. It has to fit um, the personality traits of a player. Every player is going to have to figure out 
their behavior on the court uh, and these emotional outbursts, whether they're, you know, holding them back or they're benefiting them. However, if you ask me as a coach, I think a general, generally speaking, the players that can play well under adversity, uh, they're in a, they're in a minority. I think someone like a curious also, a lot of people don't realize that, but the, he plays his best tennis under adversity, actually. If you really look at the matches, if you study it, he plays really well under adversity. It's definitely something that he thrives under. Um, and players like that are rare. Most players, when they get angry, they start falling apart. Yeah, I, th I think I think we, I mean, depends very much, like you said, I think for Novak, he needs to get it out of the system because it like boils up and he knows that I need to release this so I can refocus. And for some players, that burst becomes like more and more negative. You know, they can't seem to stop. It's like an avalanche. Like they can't seem to stop it. You know, it's just going down, down, down. It escalates. They lose, lose more and more of their their, yes. their mind, right? Yes, yes. Um, and and he has found a way to to stop that. For Federer, maybe it was just like okay, stone face, all, all in. Yes. Rafa seems to have this magic. Just like no matter what, I'm gonna play the next point the same way I played the previous point. Same way I played the previous point. I don't know where he learned. I mean, obviously with Tony, but but. That he seems to handle it a bit differently, Ralph. But do you think if I compare Nadal to Federer, I think Nadal is a lot more expressive when he's not exactly, doing yeah. well, a lot more. Now, he doesn't throw his racket because of the respect for the game, and my hat is off to him for that. I really like that about Nadal. But he is definitely more expressive when things are not going well. He has a tendency to punch the strings or do like facial expressions that are negative. So he's more expressive than, for example, Borg or Edberg or, or Federer. You know, even though Federer did have every now and then an outburst where he like hit the ball into the stands at the French Open or he smashed his racket in Miami one year. So that old Federer, let's call it the real Federer, would come through sometimes. But I do think there's a big difference in uh, when you talk, look at the big three, the way they approach um, negativity in the matches is completely different on, uh, on each player. There's big differences. Yeah. I think you need to... Um to like have a really good idea of yourself to really integrate these things. I mean, well, you can learn from all the top guys, of course, but when you're playing your own matches, for example, you need to have uh, an idea of what, what are you doing in a match, for example? Are you getting too negative on yourself and then you're losing the set six love? Or do you yeah. have like a release valve? You know, do you need to scream out something? Some people need to do that. Mm. Uh, and some people can do the stoic, but it's uh, stoic is, seems to be the toughest one, right? What, what are you doing when you're playing a match? Well, are you a crazy guy or a stoic? <laughs> That's a great question. So I can catch myself when I'm performing at my worst. And that is when I'm playing with low intensity. So if I'm playing out there, I'm not grunting and there's no intensity. I'm just going through my motions. This is when I play my absolute worst tennis. But when I'm engaged and when I'm playing with high intensity, that also might include me like maybe exploding every now and then and, and, and ripping the ball into the fence or I don't really throw rackets because I always play with old rackets and I can't afford to throw them because they're hard to come by, you know, and I, they don't even have them on eBay. So I don't throw rackets for a long, long time because of that. But, um, yeah, I, for me, the important thing in my game that I'm in the battle mentally, that I'm right there fighting 100%. If I feel myself, um, with low intensity, this is where, where I'm at my worst. So, if the high intensity includes some negative negativity on the court, and I put a lot of my matches on YouTube and where some people were seeing this as negative the way I was behaving because I was mic'd up 
But for me personally, when I'm like that, when I'm engaged, when I'm like high intensity, and even maybe there's some negative self-talk every now and then, this is when I'm usually at my best, me personally. So the key for me is to find that that battle inside me where I want to give it my 100%. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I'm, I'm similar. Like I, I, I do the stoic, but I feel like unless I'm playing someone much weaker, that I sometimes uh, play much, much less good, right? Like I mean, I, I play play worse when I'm stoic, but like just not caring too much about the point, not showing anything. Yeah. But when I'm like, you know, the the moaning is a good idea. Like when you're groaning a bit, when you're you're grunting, <laughs> you're you're just active. Listen, like, if it comes natural. Yeah. You know, but, but also like yeah, not fake and annoying. The yeah. Point. Like, but, but right. like when you puts your intensity higher it's not that easy for me it doesn't come always naturally i have to be like mindful of it like okay like because i played like a lot better when i'm more intense you know footwork goes up everything starts being more active but then it's sometimes you go on a match and you're like just not there you're like mentally checked out a bit you're like yes. just going through the motions that's that's very dangerous i think because it's not you're not enjoying it either right this is where it gets tricky from a coaching perspective because i cannot make a generalization based on how i perform best on the court um, or anybody else for that matter. You can't say, okay, you behave like Djokovic or you behave like Federer. This is going to be the key to you doing well. It's very individual, depending on your personality traits. And you have to, as a coach, observe to see how a player performs best. This is one of the most important aspects of coaching. My dad used to say he could look at me on the court and know what score it was. He could just look at me at my body language, my posture on the court, and he knew whether I was winning or losing. And I'm telling you, he was 100% accurate with that. He always said that to me. So that is important, you know, in coaching. Um, it gets very nuanced that way. It's kind of difficult because, again, everybody's going to be different and everybody's going to perform differently. And what works for me or what works for Federer or Nadal is not necessarily going to work for other people. No, exactly. You need to find your own... Um your own trigger I, that's i mean the mental game is one of the toughest like you you can film yourself which we, we have talked about before like how important it is to have an idea of yourself as a tennis player when it mm -hmm. comes to your deficiencies or your skills or strengths or whatever but it it's not so easy to you know film your mental emotions right so you you, you have to no. like really go back and I, I i think maybe like writing a i've done that like i write a match match journal like i have my patrons where i usually if i play a match for example uh, in a tournament, I go on my Patreon and be like, okay, hey guys, you're members of Tennis Nerd. Now I'm just going to mm -hmm. use you as my internal <laughs> diary or mm -hmm. internal diary or whatever you want to call it. Because sometimes it's just like me just ranting out the, the match and like everything in my head is just blah, blah, blah. Here it is. Like, okay, they might not like it or whatever, you know, but I, I'm just trying to be completely transparent with how I felt and how the match went and even if it was a tough loss, like, you know, I'd lost in two tiebreak sets in three hours, you know, it's like, okay, blah, 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 here it is. Now I have it there. And I, I feel like that's a good writing down this stuff. You don't need to do it on a public platform, of course, but but just writing it down feels like you, you kind of get the match out of your system a little bit. And also you have, then you can go back and say, ah, you know, I was really frustrated at like, because of this thing happened, you know, and you can be one thing, like I played one match, and there's a tie break. It's a tight match. It's a long first set. The lights go. There are no floodlights. <laughs> you hardly see the ball. Right. Tournament director says, keep playing. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, and I'm really tired. It's the second match of the day. I'm like, uh, and I'm not in my head. Like, I'm in a generally okay mood. I'm doing fine in the match. Okay, I didn't serve out the set. So I'm maybe negative. 
but then this affects me more than the other guy, for example. That like then I, I lose that tie break because I'm like, think of the fucking lights, you know. <laughs> That's really how in right. my head I'm like, I can't believe that we're playing at like a, a licensed tournament, whatever. Right. It's like there's no lights. What is this, you know? Then for the second set, it comes back. But then you lost that tie break and you're like, in your head, you're like, oh, this this the light problem. It's the light problem. Of course. And, and you can lose your whole match because of that, right? Oh, so absolutely. Absolutely. That's what makes tennis so tough. So because you brought this up, I just played a match recently and I can take you through, because I still remember it vividly because it just happened two days ago. So I know exactly there was a couple of key moments in the match where I started playing poorly. And I'll take you and your audience through the what was happening in a match that made me play bad and how difficult tennis can be from a mental standpoint. So I was, I was playing against this 18 year, 18 year old kid who was a pretty good player. And the first set I played well and he didn't play so well. So it was six two two breaks, very similar in the beginning of the second set. I got up a break early. I was up three, one, but then all of a sudden, he started playing a little bit better. So I broke at 2-1 to go up 3-1. I was serving at 3-1. And it was a really long service game at 3-1 for me to go up 4-1. Uh, it was, I think, 15-40 and then a bunch of break points. And then at one deuce point, I hit a really good serve down the tee. He, like, barely got to the ball, put, put the ball half court. And for whatever the reason was, the ball was in the middle of the court. I normally would take a forehand there. I decided to do a backhand and I hit the worst two-handed backhand of my life. It was so bad. And, um, you know, I kind of shook it off, but that kind of all of a sudden uh, did something to me mentally. All of a sudden, like my confidence went dipped down a little bit because I couldn't believe that I just missed the ball like that. And then I ended up losing serve in this game, okay? So it was 3-2. Then the kid serves and uh, he's up 40 love. And he does an underhand serve at 40 love. <laughs> Can you believe this kid? He does underhand serve to me. I hate that. I got angry. I mean, I didn't say anything to him, but in, inside my head. Was this a student of yours, by the way? Sorry. Yes. And, um, and I, in, my, in my head, I'm so angry. I'm so pissed, right? He just did underhand serve. And I came to the net off the underhand serve, and he loves me with a perfect forehand topspin lob, okay? Like, I just wanted to, I wanted to explode right there, but I just kept it together. And then I serve at three all, but I, my mental state has changed. My mental state has changed. When I was up six, two, three, one, I was perfect mentally confident. I'm like, I'm playing well. I'm serving well. I'm holding serve. I'm doing good, you know? And now all of a sudden it's six, two, three all. And I'm, I'm a mess in my head. I lose the first point of that game and I'm, I'm angry. Now I'm starting to get really pissed off. End up losing that game. And I have an anger explosion on the court. I rip a ball into the back fence. Ball comes back to me. I rip it again into the back fence, like almost put a hole into the back fence. I was that angry. I'm down a freaking break now, okay? I'm down 3-4, and I had the match won. And so I don't even sit down on the changeover. Now, this is all things that you shouldn't do, okay? Don't copy this. But I don't even – It's and remember, this is like Florida in the summer. It's like it, – 85% humidity, it's 100 degrees, sweating bullets out there. I don't even sit down to dry myself. I don't even drink water. I just go straight to the other side. And I'm like steaming inside. And uh, the, the kid wins the first point. He's up 15 love. And in my head, I'm already thinking, 
I'm going to lose the set. I'm thinking the set is almost gone. Like I'm down a break. This is going to be a disaster. And I get into like kind of a tank mode in my head. And he serves a ball to my forehand. And I just rip it almost with my eyes closed. I rip a forehand return. And I somehow end up hitting the, the cleanest forehand return winner you've ever seen. But not even trying. And so I hit this return winner. And all of a sudden, I'm like, come on, Nick. You know, <laughs> like, let's, let's try again. And then at 15 all, I try hard. I fight hard on that point. I win that point, 15-30. And I know I, know I have 15-30. I know now if I play well, I can break right back. And so I win the next point. I have 15-40. And I break in. And, and now, all of a sudden, I'm back where I was at 6-1-3-1. My head is clear. I'm positive. And I serve really well that game. Hit a few aces. Uh, go up. 5-4, and then I break, returning really well, I break and win the match, 6-2, um, 6-4. So that is, you know, it's kind of tennis in a nutshell, what can happen, you know. This is the, the nuance of tennis. It's when the level is close enough, it's always a few points here and there that will uh, decide the outcome of a match. Even a match like this, that on paper looks so easy, 2-4, and four, even this match could have easily been you know, six two three six three six going the wrong way. You know, losing. So, um, yeah, I just want to share that with you. Thought you might find it interesting um, sharing kind of the mental experiences that I went through just playing a match a couple of days ago. Because now they're fresh. If we wait a year from now, I won't remember any of it. So maybe it's good to write th this down on a piece of paper, or maybe talk into a phone right after the match. And this could be very valuable. Uh, down the road when you play future matches. Yeah, I think so. And I, I, I really love that stuff. I feel like the mental part of tennis is the most interesting for me. Like it, like the fight internally and also against your opponent. But it's like internally because you go through, like even like you said, 6-2, 6-4, uh, whatever the score is, it's a roller coaster inside the match, inside your head. It might exactly. be a roller coaster. Very few matches, unless you're so much better or so much worse, are just one straight line, right? Like where right. you feel like, okay, this guy is bad, I'm gonna beat him, or mm -hmm. this guy's too good, I'm gonna lose. So you just have that roller coaster. You can even that's why the tennis scoring is kind of fascinating because it's like, oh, you see six, two, six, three. Ah, it was easy. He had like he had just got two breaks, one set, one break, the other set. No, you don't know. Like maybe the guy had a break up in both sets. And just there was some long rallies. Mm -hmm. He had a really bad bounce, lost his mind, broke his racket. And then like, that's the score. You, you don't really see the full story of the match. And that's sometimes why we discussed that before, like, like the, the dangerous part of just watching highlights. You know, it's like if you watch highlights about like a pro player match, you don't see the ebbs and flows of the match. You just see the spectacular points where I feel like the storyline of the match is the most interesting. Like if someone could narrate like, well, here, Ben Shelton, he, he had like, he had a huge serve. The guy was like, you know, really uh, depressed after that. And it's like lost his intensity, blah, 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 blah. That's the most interesting part of the match, I think. To me, the most boring part of the match is seeing a compilation of winners. I mean, I, of course, there are some unbelievably spectacular winners from Alcaraz where you're like, oh my goodness, he hit a forehand that looks like it was 300 miles an hour, you know? And it's fun to watch that or between the legs, behind the back, whatever, around the net post. I mean, everybody loves watching that. But seeing the regular winners in a match, to me, it's very boring. What I find fascinating about watching tennis at any level, whether I'm watching a recreational level match or a pro match, is those little intricacies of a tennis match. Like, how does somebody perform when they're, 
down 30, 40, and I got a second serve, you know? Because it's like a lot of tension built up when you're watching that. So this is one example of many uh, that makes tennis uh, so fun to watch. It's not the highlights. It's You can watch the mental ebbs and flows of a player in real time, and that makes it super entertaining to me. Yeah, I agree. And I also think like... Um, there's so much value in the the storyline, which is why the scoring system is fascinating, and, and right. I, I, it becomes even even better in a five set match. Yeah, uh, you even had the like the scoreline now Medvedev Rublev in uh, I think yesterday's quarterfinal was it yesterday? I'm not sure, um, but, but at least when we're talking about this U.S. Open, it's probably already been. But that match was six three, six two, six four, something mm -hmm. like that. That was the the general. No no set was until a tie break or even five five, mm -hmm. right? But they were, uh, and Medvedev was too good. The heat was unbearable. New York was like super humid and, and pretty horrible to play in. But Rublev had several sets like where he was leading, you know, he was a break up, you know, and right. something. So there was momentum shifts in that match that were mm -hmm. the key moments. Those, those, right. I think like if they want to do highlight compilations, I would much more prefer like this was a key moment explain shortly with some smart commentator maybe like Nikola Racic explain the 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 context what is happening here and what is happening now because like just seeing five it doesn't tell you anything like it doesn't really like it doesn't tell you the whole story like there's, like it, it's not even a book you know excerpt it's like you want the summary of what well, happened in the match I've done videos on this many videos um titled stop watching highlights and I titled this video, uh, you won't learn anything. And I stand by that. You won't learn anything from watching highlights, but you will be entertained. So it's just yeah. pure entertainment at that point. Um, and I always go back to um, this Ivan Ljubicic interview that I heard where he basically was talking about the same things, where a lot of the kids that he sees, a lot of the great juniors that are coming up now, have a lack of knowledge about the game of tennis simply for the fact that they don't really watch matches anymore because the short attention span is real. And he mentioned the story of um, this one kid at his academy in Croatia that was a servant volleyer. And Ljubicic started talking about one of the greatest servant volleyers ever, Patrick Rafter. And this kid had never heard of Rafter. And Ljubicic couldn't believe that a kid who likes the serve and volley has never heard of Patrick Rafter. I've had some experiences with players on the court too. For example, Macy uh, that I featured in the series Emma versus Macy and never heard of Goran Ivanishevic. And I can't, somebody that like was looking at rankings since an early age and looks at results every day, I cannot fathom the idea that somebody has not heard of these legendary players, but that's the future of tennis where the short attention span, the highlights, players nowadays are just not that familiar with the game. They don't have a deep understanding of, of the players that are competing at the highest level simply because our culture is changing. It was much different from back in the day. Everybody knew all the players. Uh, everybody knew their playing styles. Um, People also knew about the history of tennis. So when I grew up, you know, even though, um, like, I wasn't that knowledgeable about Gerolitis and Borg and Vilas and all those guys, I, of course, knew them. And I, I, I was somewhat familiar with Borg and all these guys. But nowadays, 
if you if you talk to kids, first of all, they don't know some of the older generations of players. And when you ask them like who won Wimbledon last year, or if you ask them like, can you tell me the top ten rankings WTA and ATP? I'm telling you, the vast majority of kids don't know. They don't know and they don't care. And if we go back 20 years, you ask those same same questions, everybody would know. So I think that's the big difference nowadays is because our culture has changed to to this like um, short attention span where you're just watching clips. Um, there's just a generally um, a lesser knowledge about the game of tennis uh, from the new generations of players. Yeah, I think that, I mean, there's an overload on information. So everybody tries to shortcut information all the time. And I find that, I mean, obviously this is, you know, the world is changing. Maybe you have to, you know, I'm trying to adopt my ways a little bit, but like reading books, for example, that's very helpful. Like reading, like I used to read tennis books, I used to read chess books, all kinds of books, history books, whatever, um, as a kid, you know, and you learn so much from reading or from like, Going through, it's like this, you know, if you play a long match, if you do something that takes time, it's a challenge. It's a bit of a struggle at times. It seems like you gain more from it. Like there's no 10-minute workout that's going to change you, you know? It's like you have to, work has to, it has to be some, you have to put in some effort and, and go through some shit in life, in sport, in whatever, you know? And I feel like when it's always, when we only have the attention span of watching like Muratoglu uh, explain how to hit a slice in a 60-second uh, TikTok it it's not good like it it probably hurts more than it than it uh, than it does any good because people be like oh yeah so this is it i saw 60 second uh, tiktok you know uh, with funny music listen i i do short form content too um and i try to make it as valuable as, as possible because you have to go with the current trends if you want to reach the audience like i want to reach a younger audience this is why i think what felix um from tennis brothers is doing is so great the the he's blowing up and he's connected to that younger audience because we need to connect them with the game of tennis. So if they have a short attention span, we as creators have to go and make short form content so we can get these new players into the game. So while it is true that it's going to be hard to teach someone um, in a short amount of time, what I try to do is find ways to make it valuable enough or entertaining enough where I do and maybe draw some attention to my content. And then hopefully that leads to uh, people consuming uh, some of my long form content where they're going to learn a lot more. That's the idea behind it. Yeah, I think you need to adapt. Like, I think it also gets into this situation where like you have my my parents, for example, they, they are more like, you know, I'm not going to bother opening an Instagram account. And I'm right. like, yeah, you can get some good stuff from it. Like you like you, cats or dogs, whatever videos, there are plenty of mm -hmm. there. You know, but they just they just like no refuse to move on and, and evolve. And not with everything, but but with some key things they are just like stonewalled, right? There's yes. no chance I'm gonna even try. I understand. And that annoys me because I feel like it's almost like an obligation as a human to try to follow a little bit along with society, right? Otherwise you're just gonna be like an old crab there like running around. I see stones, what you're saying. You know, yeah, I see what you're saying. Look, me personally, I try to um adapt with the culture i'm not a person that's stubborn i'm very much someone who's open to new experiences so i adapt and for example my parents they adapted to a degree too you know but i know exactly what you're talking about there are some people who are resistant to that to changes in society and they kind of do things the old school way 
It's true. Yeah, and I, 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 and I do understand them. I'm like an old school, old school guy in many ways, right? Mm -hmm. But you also have to have a part of yourself that's like, even for like what you said is good. I think it's like you want to reach a young generation to do good for tennis and to be, stay relevant in tennis, and then you have to adapt your content a little bit. So and that can help them as well, right? Like so, it's it's like there's a good thinking behind it. And you just need to do it. You can't be just like, oh, no, I'm only doing uh, like radio. You know, it's like it's, it's not. I always thought that short form content is important in my niche, uh, which is, you know, tennis instructional content, I guess, or tennis content in general. Short form content is, is very important. Um, if I wasn't utilizing it, I felt like I would be missing out. Um, on a big chunk of the audience. I do think it's very important because that's unfortunately where the trend is going, unfortunately. And yeah. that kind of, you know, to go back to the issue that I'm seeing with the young generation of players that is not very knowledgeable about the game of tennis, I think that's very related, the fact that they are consuming so much quick, short content that just simply less knowledgeable about it. So, but what I'm thinking in my head is to have short form content, that leads to consuming longer form content where they can learn more. That's my idea. You know, I like that. I'm, I'm, I'm doing, trying to do the same. I can't yeah. give, give up on TikTok, but uh, for Instagram at least. <laughs> uh, no, but it's like, um, I think, do you think like it can hurt their tennis that they watch, partly they watch too much highlights, right? But they also have this short attention span, watch short, like everything becomes about like hitting that smoking winner so that someone can put it on Instagram as a reel. <laughs> Like, it's a lot about, like, how that affects people's tennis, like, maybe young people's tennis, is that, you know, if you're not playing uh, Alcaraz-style tennis, you know, tennis is about winning matches mm -hmm. and enjoying yourself while doing it, but it's like, maybe it has an effect on them. Do you know what I mean? It 100% has an effect. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind that the fact that more upcoming players are consuming highlights, it does reflect in their play. Remember when I was telling you about the match that I played and somebody, uh, this kid served me an underhand serve? Dude, this was unheard of back in the day when I grew up. This was a sign of disrespect, you know? Like somebody would, if you did an underhand serve, you could expect the other person to draw you in and then rip a ball in your chest, Ivan Lendl style. Remember when Ivan Lendl used to play McEnroe? Yeah. And he used to rip balls right into McEnroe's chest? That's what would happen if somebody, <laughs> if somebody did an underhand serve because... You know, there's debates out there that it's like a legitimate tactic and it's good. Okay, that's fine. But I'm telling you as a player, when somebody does an underhand serve against you or stands right behind the service line when you're serving, you're going to get very angry. So why are players doing it now more than ever before? I think it's because of the highlights. Why are players now attempting more tweeners and behind the back and all these kind of highlight real shots? I do think uh, it's from highlights. Now, luckily, I do think that the actual game in itself won't be affected much from that because I don't think that that's any type of formula for success. Uh, long term, you still have to play the game the right way. So I don't think that it has necessarily has an effect in that way. But um, in other words, I do think still the best players are going to be the ones that we're going to be seeing on TV that don't utilize that stuff. But it is true that now we're seeing more uh, of this type of play than ever before. You know, I remember back in the day, like remember when Michael Chang did it against um, 
Ivan Lendl, the underhand serve. This was like, this was, everybody was talking about that for years afterwards. He only did it once, only one time yeah, in the fifth that. set. And he only did it because he was cramping. And now, I mean, there's so many players who do it. It's not even funny. Like, and you see it all the time. So there's definitely a change. Why is there, why are the players doing it now? It's hard to say. Could it be highlights? Maybe. I don't know. But there's definitely a change. Well, I think there's also like a kind of like everybody, you know, wants a strong idol today, right? So they, the, the people they look up to are kind of different. Like, so you have Kyrgios, he's brought a lot of tennis fans. Yeah. Um, maybe his heart is not 100% in tennis. You can argue that it's either that or he, that he hates losing so much that he can't take it. His talent, you know, gets hurt. His ego gets hurt. Gets hurt. Uh, but he brought in like a lot of underhand disrespect tennis, you know, and <laughs> and I think a lot of players love to watch that. So they'd be like, oh, yeah, it's awesome. Like to see Nick. And I also I mean, I love watching Nick when he's on his game. It's it's fun. Yeah. Same with Bublik. You know, you have a few guys here who's playing a little bit of showman tennis, uh -huh. right? So maybe that affects also the young generation watching that because they get the most clips, reels stuff to watch, you know. I think it does. I'll be honest with you. I do think there's a big effect on that. And also something that Boris Becker was talking about. There's a awesome video on YouTube. Uh, I think it's from the US Open where there's Vlander, Landel, McEnroe, and Becker sitting together and talking about tennis. I think it's a two-parter. I must have watched both of those videos like 10 times each. And it's just so fascinating what they were talking about. And one thing that Becker said was that what he sees nowadays is these celebrations when players win matches. They're so elaborate and everybody has their own little like trademark celebrations and all that. And Becker said, you know, back in my days, we weren't celebrating going into the fourth round or the quarters or the semis. You don't celebrate that. You celebrate when you win the tournament. And even then, you know, you do it somewhat muted celebration because you want to be ready for the next tournament. See, to me, that is the real approach to tennis. I find it very cringeworthy when I see like these tra like trademark celebrations for players when they win like the first round of a Grand Slam or the just, you know, unless they're winning the whole tournament, I don't think it's a positive thing. I'm sorry. It shows you that uh, it actually is a negative sign mentally because it shows that you are overvaluing what you just did. And um, it shows that you have, you have limitations on your own expectations. In other words, you are happy to be in a fourth round. You are happy to be in the quarters. You are happy to be in the semis. Maybe as happy as winning the whole tournament. You're satisfied with that result. Therefore, you're holding yourself back for doing better results down the road. So that's what Becker was talking about. And I do see that now more than ever before is how players are behaving when they win a match. Yeah, I wonder if it's like some, because I've seen it from pretty much all players. Like they, they, more and more like people celebrate also winning fourth round. Even like, I mean, Djokovic Rafa sometimes celebrate a bit extra, you know, more than they did maybe five years ago. I think maybe there was like some kind of trend in it. Maybe, uh, but I do think there's a distinct difference between uh, Djokovic and Nadal. When they celebrate, um, because I feel like they're embracing the fans a lot of times in their celebrations. That's, that's what I was going to get to. Yeah, like, yeah. sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. I think the idea there is more like giving a bit to the fans. Exactly. They know they're like favorite. I feel like I agree 100% what you're saying. I really like when Medvedev 
did his even when he beat like Novak, he was like he didn't move his, you know his face. He was like, okay, you know, I'll just go to the net and shake his hand. He didn't do one celebration. I love it, and that was kind of a thing. But I, I liked the way it looked because it was like supremely confident. Like, okay, okay, I won. You know, next match. Well, what it is, it's it's confidence can be part of it. But what what you're saying to yourself and the world is that this is not it for me. I got more to come. I want to win the whole thing. I want to win multiple of the whole thing. And I go back to something that I heard from Pete Sampras that I never, ever forgot. One of the most valuable things that I learned about tennis on the road. And he said that the pivotal change in his career came when he lost to Ed Berg in the U.S. Open final. Because as you remember, Sampras came out and won the U.S. Open when he was like maybe 17 or 18, right? And then he yep. was doing pretty good for a few years but he wasn't at the top of the game by any means, right? And so he lost um, in another U.S. Open final to Edberg. And Sampras said that he caught himself after the match being happy with the result. So he was happy for having made the final. And he realized this being an unbelievable trap. And it's at that moment when he became one of the GOATs. And he started winning everything and he started dominating tennis. So I do relate this Emperor story to the celebrations and all this because sometimes you can see when a player is like so happy to have done something on the court, you know that that's that for them. They're, they're tapped out, like they're satisfied, in other words, and they're not, they're not ready for more. However, when I, and I've said this on my channel before, when I watch the big three, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, and when I see how they behave after they win a Grand Slam tournament, so... Especially if it's a tough battle, they will fall on the court. They might even cry and they're unbelievably happy. But you can see within the trophy ceremony how the game phase comes back. And by the end of the trophy ceremony, you have the feeling that they're going to hit the practice court in a half an hour because they're stone-faced. It's almost like all the happiness is drained out of them because that's the only way to become that level when you can win multiple grand slams if you don't overvalue your success i can tell you as a comparison when goran ivanishevich won wimbledon late in his career when he, he was already already written off and nobody expected him to do anything and he was a fantastic player in a very very difficult era he was ranked number two and made many wimbledon finals he was one of the greats okay and then he wins wimbledon and what did, he, what did he do when he won Wimbledon? Well, he came to the city of Split on a boat and there was like 250,000 people there. And he jumped into the, into the harbor there, which is like uh, notoriously dirty, the harbor in Split. You don't really swim there. And you knew at that moment that there's not going to be any more Grand Slams. <laughs> okay. That was the only one because he wasn't like Djokovic or Nadal or Federer where the game face was back on. He was, he was celebrating. And yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's hard to say, like, be like the big three because this is just human nature. You're going to do what feels right to you. And all I can do is just observe how people are. I don't think necessarily this is something that you can control. So um, that's what I, when I, when we go all the way back to the celebrations that are so common now where players are doing all this stuff after they win matches. Um, 
Yeah, I do think it's a I do think it's a it's a problem. I do think it's something that uh, has changed uh, a lot in the last few years. It used to be used to be different, but I also you know acknowledge the fact that every player is a different personality, and not everybody can be like the goats or Alcaraz and just go from one tournament to another. It's natural for people to be satisfied with a certain result. And I mean, how many times have I heard like TFO and Kyrgios say that if they win a Grand Slam, they're going to be done right away, you know? So everybody's different in that regard, you know? It gets quite complex. But it's interesting you you mentioned TFO because I, that's what I felt like, okay, he beat Rafa. That was like, I think last year in US Open. And he, he he's, uh, I mean, really interesting player to watch, really nice guy. Um, and but he's he really celebrated and you felt like that's it you know like you get that strong feeling you've seen that and i feel like sometimes with with the, the goats they've they've like the three goats right they created this barrier that you know you're not going to win a slam so if you win a match even against them that's all you can hope for like that's kind of like ends the the child the quest is over like like you oh i beat uh, rafa i would never think i would meet beat rafa in a slam yeah yeah but you have two more matches you know and then you're a grand slam winner you know, come on, like, or one more, whatever. But it's like, that's, it's, it's takes so much energy out of them that it stops their momentum, right? Like, and it's quite an interesting thing. And I, I feel like they, I think that this kind of seeped into the whole mental, like the whole generation, you know, like, you know, Sverev, Sitsipas, all these guys, you know, mm. partly it's, goats are so good, like they are so good, but they also created this wall of confidence, right? That it's like, you don't beat these three guys. You're not going to win slams. I mean, unless it's a freak lottery win of a situation. And then you have a guy now like Alcaraz who has this confidence from coming from beyond something, right? Mm -hmm. And he can, can do it. He can he can do it. He can like soldier through. He, he has that confidence. But for the rest of the guys, it seems like, I mean, a lot of these guys you can almost write off now. You know, it's like this like 25-year-old people, like you're not going to win a slam or most likely not. Yeah. Maybe one, you know? Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, I do think there's also a discrepancy in level a little bit yeah, between yeah, like course, the, yeah. between like a prime Murray, of course, the big three and Alcaraz. I do feel like there's a discrepancy in level, right? Like, so when you watch somebody like, let's say like Zverev, who's an unbelievable player, right? Amazing player, like top five, incredible player. But when he plays against Alcaraz, you can see there's a difference in level, in my opinion. Even though Zverev's beaten him a bunch of times, like when they play now, I feel like Alcaraz is the better player. Or when you have like Tsitsipas play against Alcaraz, I see a difference in level. I feel like that Alcaraz is just a better player, you know? So there's yeah. not much they, those can, they can do mentally to overcome that when there's a discrepancy in level. I mean, it doesn't mean that they'll never beat Alcaraz, like they can still beat him uh, if he catches a bad day. But to me, it looks like he, he's a stronger player. He's just, he's just above, he's just a step above everybody else. Like the only people that are at his level right now would be Djokovic. And maybe if Nadal is healthy, I think he can be too, but no, nobody else. That's just what I see. No, but it's funny, like, yeah, it just shows how tennis is such a game of like skill. Like, because it's like, this guy has a gear higher than most other guys yeah. like like novak for example like novak he has one extra level above everyone pretty yes. much except yes. rafa roger and alcaraz right and then the rest they just have to it it's, it must be so mentally frustrating like if oh you're a God. top top six top eight guy you're like oh, i'm gonna win i'm gonna go for slams 
but it's just like feels must feel like you're hitting a wall when you get to the semifinal, quarterfinal, or even final. Yeah. Like Pasperu did got two finals. Three. Sitsipas two finals. Uh, three finals even, yes, true. Uh Sitsipas two finals. Sverev one final. Uh so it's like I mean these guys are just, boom. these guys are great players. They're unbelievable players. Yeah, course, All three. You know? I mean I love I'm a big Sitsipas fan. I thought when he first came out he was gonna be the next Bjorn Borg. You know, good looking guy, the hair, everything, like everything looked like he was gonna be the next big thing, but it turned out that he is just like a great player, let's call it like a birdage type. It didn't seem like he was gonna be one of the goats. That's what it turned into, but who can predict that? You know, you really can't. And then Alcaraz comes through and he is one of the goats, you know? So it's just hard. It's hard. It's very hard. Yeah, tennis is, is very rough in that sense. Yeah. That it's like, um, it's quite, quite, um, it's just like you can't tr trick it. it. It's it's on paper. Like, it's just, okay, he's just better than you. Means he's going to beat you 8 out of 10. And, that, and that's uh, that's tough on the highest level of, of well, the tour. Well, let me, let me, let me, talk about that because that's interesting um, because when people say like tennis is all mental uh, I definitely agree with that but there are discrepancies in level where the mental part when mental game is not so important in other words when like at the recreational level uh, four or five plays against a 5-0 it's not going to come down to the mental game at all so the 4-5 could be the strongest mental giant of all time there's a discrepancy in level between him and the 5-0, the 5-0 going to win, and he might as well be uh, a mental disaster, okay? He's still going to win because at the end of the day, it's a skill-based sport where the skill is going to be the most important factor. I think where the mental part comes in is when the skills are very similar. When the skill set is similar, now it comes down to more of the mental game. So when we're talking about the greatest... And I made a video about this uh, a while back. I titled it The Biggest Secret in Tennis, which was kind of like a joke title because there, no, there is no secret. Um, but I talk about like I had a pizza in that video and it was 10 slices of pizza and each slice represented a quality that you must have to play tennis at the highest level. And um, the greatest of all time are ranking like 10 out of 10 in all categories. You know, so they are just more skilled than everybody else. It's just that simple. They're just ranking higher in each one of the categories than the next. And there's really nothing you can do. You know? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a game of, of balls and lines, right? So it's like, it, it's not, there's not like a, a huge element of luck in tennis. So uh, whether like, I, I really enjoy, like you say, it's like, okay, it's very, mental game is always there when the level is equal, but when you're playing um, a better player, it, it's you can just look at the statistics. That's we were started with that, like the ranking statistics, can do. the matches. That's it. You know, what are you going to do? It, 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 when yeah. I if I go on a court right now with Alcaraz, what am I going to do? Like, there's you're right. There's not going to be any luck possible unless the the earth opens up a huge sinkhole and he falls through. That's my only chance. Like, there's nothing in this world that can happen that's going to make me have a chance, like 0, 0.00 chance. Because when you look at that that pizza or the 10 things that you must have to, to be a great player, like he is kicking my ass so hard in each one of these categories that it makes it impossible for me to have a hint of a chance. So when we're talking about like 
comparing somebody that plays competitive tennis, maybe in college or something, comparing to a recreational player, it's the same thing. Nothing in this world can happen where the rec player is going to have a chance against somebody that's at a little higher level. The story you told in the beginning when you play the guy who who is going to be 200, right? So that's yeah. where tennis is a sport about skill. It's a skill-based sport. But having said that, the mental game obviously is one of the most important things that people talk about when tennis is all mental. I do agree, but it's still a skill-based sport. The skill is the most important thing. Yeah, so I think like the, the encouragement for players out there listening, club players, whatever level you're on, is try to beat everyone within that level, right? Like try to improve your fundamental skills so much that you beat the players on your level. That, that could be your goal, but not, I mean, I dreaming to be like 1.5 points higher NTRP, for example, or okay. that, that's, that's just like taking away attention. Like if, if you should just focus on what you can improve in the level you are for now, right? That's it. Well, look, I mean, I've talked about this ad nauseum. I mean, I really, and I have another, I have another video coming out. That's going to be my last one ever. Um, this video is going to come out soon in a month or so. And then I'm really done talking about this because I've talked about it too much. And people really don't like when I talk about this. Oh, okay. uh, but like the thing is, the most number one question that I get on social media is, is it late to me? Is it too late for me to turn pro? And the age could be like 14, 15, 16, 17, could be like even 25 or 30 years old. I get this question a lot. And my answer is um, very vague um, because... I don't say yes or no. I just say you got to go step by step because and I've said this many times. If you set a goal that's too real, too unrealistic, too far away. Let me just give you an example. Let's say somebody that's of a level of 4.0 NTRP and wants to play futures. And this is not a made up story. This is, this is real. That goal of succeeding at that level is so unrealistic. It's so insanely high. Or another story is somebody who's dreaming about playing on tour on Wimbledon, but they're playing in juniors and losing in the lowest possible level first round every tournament. But yet their goal is to be on a tour. So the goal that set is so far away that the only outcome of this goal is going to be the quitting of tennis because when the player realizes that this goal is unattainable, they're going to lose all motivation and they don't want to play anymore. So when you set a goal that's within your grasp, within your reach, that you can achieve in a month, you're going to be far more motivated to work hard and reach that goal. And this can be sustained for very long periods of time if you approach tennis with this mindset. Now, a lot of people bring up like dreams. Is it okay to dream? Look, if you are driving your car, you're in the shower, and you get those thoughts that we all had, okay, about what it would be like to win Wimbledon, and you're imagining yourself, you know, winning match point. And I read a, the Vince Spadia book called Breakpoint, which is a great book. And Vince Spadia was talking about a daydream that he had where he won the US Open, and then he moonwalked to the net, <laughs> like Michael Jackson. <laughs> so these are the type of fantasies that people have. And there's nothing wrong with that. I had those fantasies too. Everybody that has those fantasies. And if that helps you get up the next day and, and put your butt on a tennis court, by all means, it's fine. But the real goal setting and the decisions 
you make based on your goals. In other words, I have some examples of juniors that are from different parts of the country and they move their entire family to here, Southeast Florida, because they want their kids to become pro, but the kid is like at a beginner level. So the goals that you have can have horrible impacts on your entire life, on your finances, on your relationships inside the family, if they are the wrong goals. You understand what I'm saying? So a family moves yeah. here for the purposes of tennis, which happens almost every day here. This is the tennis mecca of junior tennis. And um, this can have horrible outcomes. It can hurt you financially. It can have horrible outcomes. So again, that's why I preach step-by-step goal setting. Uh, I'm fine with people having dreams, but you got to approach it in a, in a way that I suggest or you're going to have problems. Yeah, you got to have realistic dreams as well. Like, I mean, it's it, otherwise you will, I mean, if you have a goal that you can't reach, it's a pointless goal, right? Like there's no point. And I think maybe some of the issues is like, I've seen this too. I mean, it sounds quite extreme in, in where you are, but I've seen this too, where uh, people come here to to south of Spain, like also quite tennis heavy. We have Djokovic living here. We have a lot of pros training here, and they come here and they join some training camps, some academy. Uh, I'm so, I'm you know available to hit. I'm a tennis prostitute, right? So people, if they want to play, like I'm always up for hitting. Whether it's a 16 year old, 18 year old, whatever, you know. And a lot of these compete on the ITFs, and and all of them have the dream of being a pro. These are kids, like so. You could, you don't tell them, even if you think in your head, like, man, you lost to me. There's no chance in hell you're gonna be a pro. <laughs> like, you you want to say that, uh, but but you can't, right? So you don't. It's a kid. You have to treat their feelings uh, a bit special, right? But the problem is the parent. The parent is delusional, like, and nobody has maybe ever told this parent, or they have not studied, they have not done the research, they have not consulted common sense. They have just decided like, hey, you know, we're just going to put in like 60,000 whatever uh, dollars, euros and try to become a pro. And it's like if they have talked to uh, a guy like yourself or someone knowledgeable in tennis, a club pro, someone with a sense, common sense, they could have said, hey, I, I don't think this is the moment for it. But I really believe that they should go and play tennis and enjoy it for the rest of their life. But the pro career is sadly out of reach, right? Like that's sadly the situation. You know, it's 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 just going to bring more hardship for the family if you do it. Mm -hmm. Just my warning. But that's what I've seen as well. Like is that the the family seems to all be in this delusion together, uh, maybe coming from the parents from the beginning, and it's it's a it's a sad thing to see because it's going to hurt the kid the most in the end, right? It's going to hurt the, the whole family, and it's going to hurt the relationship between the kid and the parents too. Um, so it's very hard. It's very hard. But what I try to tell parents, and this is more regarding academies. So I have very, I have very specific advice regarding academies because I do believe that academies are incredibly necessary for the development of future stars. Without academies, you will see less great players on tour. This is hardcore fact. I believe in this. But what you have to understand is Again, I don't want to be boring, okay? You tell me if I'm too boring and I'll try to like try to like <laughs> say things faster. Um, but you have to go step by step. So if you are at a club somewhere and there are kids that are beating beating your kid, okay, it's for the tennis parents regarding academies, there's absolutely no point of going to an academy. Because what's gonna happen is the following thing. Your kid is likely at a lower level, and that's the whole reason why they're losing at the local level in your club. 
So when they go to the academy, they're not going to be placed with the high-level kids. Why would they? Why would the academy force the high-level players to play with somebody that's like beginner level or intermediate? They're going to have groups, high-level, intermediate, beginner. Your kid is going to go in a beginner group, and they actually might not improve at all. They're going to stay at this level. But parents, I think, believe if they throw a lot of money at the problem, they hire coaches, they send them to an expensive academy, magically, this is all going to turn into a pro career. So again, there's no reason to send your kid anywhere unless there are signs where your kid is beating everyone in your area. You start expanding the pool of competition where, where it's like inevitable that when there's nobody else that can beat your kid in your maybe entire county or state, now you go to the world famous academy and you're living together with other players who are world-class junior players. And now everybody that's at that level is driving each other and making each other as good as it possibly can be. That's how it works. But I've seen too many parents thinking that by simply moving here to Florida and going to IMG, going to Everett, you name it, that that, that in itself is enough to um, get a scholarship in college or to, to turn pro it's it's definitely not it's not that you can be you can be from anywhere in the united states i wouldn't say anywhere okay maybe there's some spots that are like kind of tough with tennis okay but you can be in most states in the united states and turn into a pro player you don't need to go to an academy until it's time to go to an academy that's that's all i'm saying no, I, I think the the issue is, from what I can see, sometimes it's, I mean, the issue is money because I think some people, I mean, the issue is money in the way that if you can't afford a tennis career, it's rough. Like I talked about, like I, talk, I meet a lot of pros, ex-pros, whatever, that money was the main issue that they couldn't keep playing even though they were high level, right? But there's also money in the other direction where the parents have too much money that they feel like they've learned through their life that if you throw money on that problem, mm -hmm. the problem will be solved. And they feel like if their kid is not good at tennis, they throw enough money on the kid, it will soon be very good at tennis. And I feel like that mindset yeah. sometimes, I mean, it's a bit simplistic, but it's like, I feel like that mindset of just, because tennis is expensive, right? So we have money, yeah. we can put him in the best academy. In tennis, that doesn't matter. Like if mm -hmm. there's no talent, not enough talent, they haven't started when they were like five or six or seven, it's highly unlikely that they have what it takes. It's highly unlikely. It might be, but yeah. it's very highly unlikely. Well, first of all, the most important thing about a kid is whether they like the idea of hitting a tennis ball, whether they're infatuated with the game of tennis. If they like the game of tennis, you have nothing to worry about. They can be hitting against the, you know, the garage door. They're going to find a way to play if they like to play. So the big question that every parent must ask themselves is, does the kid like playing tennis or do you like the idea of your kid playing tennis if it's the latter if it's more you pushing the kid to go play this never results in anything significant in a division one scholarship or a pro career never results in that because at the end of the day there has to be motivation coming from within and without yeah. that it's going to be very difficult because think about it how much tennis asks of you individually i talked about this match that i just played but it's going to ask a lot of questions of yourself so if you don't have 
within yourself that drive to go forward, you have absolutely no chance. This is something that you, this is the frustrating thing for parents because it's something that you can't buy. You can't purchase that the kid has passion for tennis. You can't say, okay, here's two grand. Can you teach my son to be passionate about tennis? You just can't. You either the kid has passion or it doesn't. You know, you can't. You yeah. also can't and teach. You can't teach the desire to like be able to die in order to get a ball back to the other side. You know, there's kids out there like that, and most pros have that. And that's something that I see as a coach. I can see this in a player when I see this kid really, really wants it bad. And that's also something you can't buy. You can't instill that into a player. You can force it up to an extent, but it's going to fade away. It's not sustainable long-term. This also has to come from within. The ability to give it your absolute max out there. And it's very subtle, you know, because you can look at a player and it can look like they're giving it their all. But if you look a little bit closer, you see there's like 1% or 2% lacking a little bit. And that 1%, 2% is the reason why they can't make it. So that's also another thing that can be frustrating for parents, for coaches, if the kid simply doesn't want it that bad because there's not much you can do. No, no. Like, uh, what it has to drive has to come. Like, the, the love for tennis, like, being a tennis nerd, I know that the passion, like, you know, not being even close to any a high level player, but it's like, I had a passion when I was a kid. Like, I loved tennis, right? Like, right. I really loved it, like playing against the wall, whatever, you know. Then I, you know, tennis fell out of my life for, for quite a while. But when I came back, it was like more passionate than ever. And I think if you have that ingrained, you feel it at least. And right. That's why you're going to improve even on some level, right? But if it's not there, if it's just like a f decent hobby, don't even bother with any kind of ambitions, I would say. I, I think it's it's more than, than it's a hobby and, and uh, have fun with it when you can. But you need to really, like, if you look at the guys who are at the top of tennis, they are obsessed with tennis. There There is no e exception. Like, these guys are all obsessed with hitting tennis balls. Like, there is like, if you look at the three goats, they love tennis so much, you know. It, it's True. insane, right? Very true. But I do want to make a distinction between that and the recreational level because that's at the recreational level, tennis is a leisurely activity. Yeah, of course. So how do you make this into something meaningful and something that you can sustain for a long time? You have to understand that just having fun is going to be a difficult thing if you're not playing well. So if it's an artificial environment where you're taking a group lesson and the coach is creating fun by doing games or cardio tennis or something, you can have fun. But it's not going to be a lot of fun to play tennis. And um, let's say you're rallying with a handful of balls with another person. And then every 30 to 60 seconds, you have to go and pick up balls because you can't keep the ball in play, right? So you can say, I'm going to just play tennis for fun. But then you go and do that. And then it's not very fun, right? So how do you make it fun? Well, you can make it fun by learning to do it well. And now when you get better at it, it becomes more fun. You're more skillful at it. So this is what I tried to instill into my recreational students that the better you get, the more fun tennis will be. And that's a big incentive to learn the technique and to advance in the, you know, the levels, NTRP levels, if you wish. I 100% agree. I think this is one of the most important points. You need to have, there's almost like you need to cross a certain barrier of tennis improvement where it gets much more fun for every little tiny level you improve over that, right? Because I have friends 
who played maybe three, five, four, oh. You know, they, they love tennis. They're super into tennis for a period. But the consistency problem, like having the consistency of putting the ball where you want to, is not quite there. So, like, they get stuck with rackets. Uh, they get stuck with uh, whatever, you know. Like, you know, get stuck in something, right? Uh, oh, I have to hit the 80 beforehand. No, no, you need to hit the ball, like, to that spot where you want to hit the ball. Then it's fun. When you can control, manipulate the ball. Yeah. At, at at any pace, really, but like at least manipulate the ball to the right spot, then tennis gets fun, right? Like you can play points, you can play matches, it becomes yes. interesting. Yes. But I, I've seen some of them drop out of tennis because it they can't get over that frustrating hump of like getting the ball, like I think partly due to maybe poor coaching, but they can't get over the hump of like enjoying the, the rally play, right? Enjoy getting really good, interesting, fun rallies. Then, then it's not maybe the, the most fun. It's just frustrating for them, right? It can definitely get frustrating. And, and if you don't see improvements, if you stagnate, so this is where important for the player to seek out coaching that helps you, where you can see results and then just continue to work. And when you start playing better, you're going to like it more. You're, gonna, you're more likely to continue to play. So I do think there's a big value and what we as coaches do for the recreational level, because it's important more than any other level in tennis to teach the correct technique. And so it's very important to learn the technique because a better technique is going to result where you're talking about keeping the ball in play, directional control, all that. Forget about, uh, you know, no offense, but forget about the equipment at this stage, maybe. Maybe worry about it later, but just get your technique right. If you have a, fundamentally wrong forehand it's probably not the strings on the racket that are causing issues it's your bad fundamentals so you learn the technique and uh, as you learn technique you're going to see more results you're going to see the ball go in more your confidence is going to go up slowly so you're going to trust the swing more you're going to start taking bigger cuts so that eventually you can swing all out and not miss and now you're playing tennis like the high level players do because they can take a full cut and not miss. But to get to that point, it's a long road that takes a lot of work, you know, to clean up some of these technical deficiencies. Yeah, it's all about that. Like in the end, like that's that's my my feeling, like the frustration sometimes, even with my position, having been such a racket nut or racket expert, whatever you want to call it. But it's like so many people come to me and ask for consultation. And, and if they're like, I happily uh, assist, like, you know, you're three, five, you need like maybe a beginner level racket. Like here are five, five, four or five options mm -hmm. and just pick one. Like that, that's pretty much it. Like you don't need to get into deep like ideas. So uh, whether this works or not works, that, that you can do if you're, you know, on, on like futures level, right? Then right. you can start thinking a bit like, hey, maybe I need, you need to have a little sure. bit of weight on your racket sure. to push your opponents back. But beyond that, it's not, it just needs to feel pretty good. You know, that that's, that's, oh, and you need to trust it a bit. I agree. It, it's 100%. It becomes a little bit more, I think people just, I think it's the same in golf and in other sports. Like you, you just find a little bit of an excuse or a, a path outside where the real improvements are. Like the real improvements are hard, so you don't want to do them. So you go for an easy option, right? Everybody does this. Well, I mean, myself included. Like you, the hard improvements is like, oh, I have to go and do footwork drills. That's very boring for, for many people, sure. right? But that, that could really elevate your game sure. to do those drills. You know, so but some people are just some people are just passionate about tennis equipment, and I don't. I I, I, yeah, I am too. I'm a little bit of a racket collector too, so I don't blame people for being into gear. 
it's fine. Or to try different strings. People are just curious. In that regard, yeah, yeah, it's completely, well, it's great. It's great. I like it a lot. I think I, I support people that are into that stuff. But if you would think that the, the equipment is going to make huge shifts in your game at that and those lower recreational levels, it's definitely not. Where the, those lower recreational levels is 100% the technique that's, that's going to be messy. And what equipment you use, it's not going to like be zero effect. I do think there's some general guidelines that are going to make a big difference. So you don't want to play with a racket that can possibly hurt you or maybe a racket that's, that's too far beneath your level or whatever. You know, it gets kind of complex, but you do want to play with a racket that feels good. Like you said, you test some rackets out within your, within your range and you find one that feels good and then you don't worry about it for a while. But, um, there's people out there who, uh, like to tinker and there are some people out there who like to um, copy the pros and put lead tape on their rackets and customize it and weigh their rackets so every racket is the same way and they like to experiment with strings but i can tell you one thing um jonas that i used to string a lot of rackets okay i was a stringer for many many years i don't string anymore but the regular recreational player let's say like three five four oh maybe even four or five to some extent. When you string a racket, they cannot tell the difference between a racket that's strung at 50 pounds or 60 pounds. They just simply don't have the skill set to be able to determine what the racket is strung at. They have no clue. So it makes absolutely no difference. But in their mind, they're making so many like adjustments to their rackets that are so ridiculously useless. But I can tell you that as a stringer, they, the people don't know because I know this because I've been on the court for 30 years with players and they don't have absolutely no idea what the racket is strung, strung at. They ask the coaches or ask me to tell them. They have no clue. That's the hard truth. No, I, or if they have two rackets, one is like customized with lead tape, okay? It's got the lead tape job like Djokovic and the other one is just a regular racket. They actually don't, cannot feel, they don't have the skill set to be able to feel the difference. Everything feels the same. I, yeah, they, they can feel difference, but the question is whether they will, they will make change to the tennis, I feel. Like, I, I've tested this, like, blind tests uh, with some people, like, complete beginners, uh, media, like, four, four or fives, and six O's in therapy, like, close to pro level. Yeah. And, like, it's, it's very feeling-based, but the game level is not going to be a huge difference from, like, a 305, right? Like, it's like... I feel like most of them play with too heavy of a racket. Like that's that's the most thing I see, and people yeah. get angry at w with me. That happens over time. I say like, "Hey, man, your racket is too heavy. Probably, yeah. Uh, you should reconsider maybe having a lighter." No, no, I don't like this. Is uh, bullshit. I, I want to play with heavy rackets. And then, I, you know, I say people are different. Some people like heavy rackets, mm -hmm. but I feel like a three hundred thirty gram racket for a three five is too much. You know, that's my my feeling. It's like it's not gonna. I think it's gonna hurt you in either physically or hurt your game if you want to be a player that hits with enough topspin to be able to rip a ball right at some point or actually hit with with some well of some course ball. they're gonna feel huge differences so if you give them a like a a racket that's 270 grams versus a racket that's 350 grams of course they're gonna feel a difference but i'm um, often we're, when we're talking about racket customization we're talking about like five grams the five extra grams on the top versus five extra grams on the side. My point is that they can't feel the difference in that. While uh, no, somebody who's yeah. top five in the world might feel a little bit of difference. They can't, that's what I'm telling you. So it's like when it comes to like these, like these little intricate 
changes in the racket, it's so insignificant to them. It doesn't matter because that's not where the problem lies. But of course, if you make a drastic change in the racket weight or a drastic change in the string materials, sure that the recreational player is going to feel different. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think there's an, you sh there is such a thing as playing with the wrong racket, no doubt about it. I see it all the time. So I do think there's a lot of importance in what you do, educating the public on what rackets to play with because a lot of people choose the wrong racket. So I do think it's important. But what my, my point is, and I made videos about this, do not obsess on it. Unless this is a hobby of yours and you love customization and you love it, then it's fine. But if, if you think that like these little things that you do into your racket are going to make a difference, that's not, that's not going to make any difference. It might make a difference to someone who's like, like you said, a pro, but not at the recreational level because that's not the, where the problem lies. The problem generally lies in poor technique poor footwork, poor timing, whatever, whatever else there is on a court that can go wrong. It's not the, the five grams uh, extra or, or the, you know, <laughs> the injection into your handle that you're doing and stuff like that. That's my point. No, no, I, it's a good point. And I think people get into the weeds and I, I, the, what I see is that that becomes then like something that clouds their mind of their own play because like you get you get so much into it, like you're thinking of, of the grams making a difference when it's your stroke that's not there. And when you, that's why I always say, hey, you have to record yourself. Like it's always good to have a camera in the back because you can see, if you, if you have a little bit of self-awareness, you can see like, oh shit, I'm not moving my feet. <laughs> doesn't matter if you have the Clash 300 gram or the V-Core Pro 330 gram, it doesn't matter. Like it's, <laughs> it's like, you are not moving your feet. And you know, I can see it myself, I play, like yesterday, I, I do all these experimentations all the time because I'm testing rackets. I play with this like strong German player yesterday, um, and I play okay. Like so, I haven't. I had to test some strings. I'm, I'm, I'll take out Pure Rafa. That's 370 swing weight. It's it's a beast of a racket. Right. Like it's the origin racket, right. the, the one that specs up to his specification. Super fun to play with. Like I, you can smack some winners with it. Like and if you're hitting contacting the ball mm -hmm. well. But then over a, we play a set, right? So over a, over a set, you, you you start to feel like the weight becomes cumbersome in some situations. So it's like, that's an extreme variation. But then like you can take whatever racket, like a normal racket within a group, that's an extreme one, right? But then you can go and say, hey, between the 310 gram, 300 gram, this, the, the differences are so small like that. It's just about getting enjoying the feeling of the racket, like enjoying how it feels to you when you hit the ball mm -hmm. within that certain range, and you'll be fine. Like so, that's why when I try to recommend, I say, okay, if you're this type of player in this range, look at these types of rackets, and that's really all you need. And then you test five, and you find one, and you take that. You don't need to go deeper than that. You don't need to actually buy a lead tape roll, right? You can just, all right, I I, I am this type of player. I want a three hundred ten gram. That's that's it. Like you buy. I, I can get, like, if you want to play really high competitive tennis, like, you want to play competitive tennis, you want to, ha want to have them the same. Like, sometimes racket, like, rackets are so different, you know, especially these days. Yes. But but that's that's one way. That's not customizing to them. That's, like, matching. And, like, the tennis warehouse, for example, they offer this service. Mm -hmm. You can get a, a sheet, you know, and then, then you're done. You have a racket. You don't need to second guess. Listen, I got absolutely nothing against people. People misunderstand me sometimes. Like, if you want to match your rackets and have them the same way... That's great. I think it's great. If you want to experiment with your rackets, if that's a hobby of yours, I think it's great. I think it's, I think it's all okay. But um, I just don't think it's going to make a difference. So I, yes, I understand that. Like, you know, um, when you have four rackets in the bag and they're all the same kind, there's going to be 
differences, quite big ones, depending on the brand, um, on, on everything in the racket. Uh, the quality, the product quality control is poor with some companies. Let's just say that way. Would you, would you say this is accurate? It is very accurate. Okay. Like, I mean, I get, cause I, I have a three in one machine just next to me here. Right. And sometimes like I get test rackets all the time. Sometimes I get three, four. I have friends that also test rackets right. like on a, on a decent level. Right. And we've been doing this for years. So I feel the grams. Right. Like I feel five grams. Okay. Right? Like so, I, because that's my, my job. Right? So when I, and you might have extra sensitive hands because this is your profession. But when I play yeah, with yeah. these rackets, I, I can see, I can feel the difference. I 100% can. I can grab a racket that feels completely different than the other racket that I have in my bag. And they're the same racket and they could be strung the same. I can definitely feel the difference. I can even feel the difference in the, the grip. Sometimes the grip is a little bit different on a specific racket. Yeah. So, so I customize, yeah. Like so I customize my grips too. I put like tape on my grip. And so this is all true. There's no doubt about the fact that this is true. I'm not like debating this, but my point is unless this is a super fun hobby of yours and you're having fun doing this stuff, then by all means continue to do it. But the fact that the rackets are going to be five grams heavier or lighter in your bag, that's not going to make a big difference. And my argument is that you can't even feel that difference. If you are at a certain level, like you're okay, you are, I would consider you an advanced recreational player. So you're in a different category. Yeah. You're going to feel a lot more than, let's say somebody at a three, five level or a four O level. That's where I'm saying is like, unless it's a hobby of yours, you're putting too much attention to small intricate details of equipment that's not going to make any difference whatsoever. So the fact that the rackets are weighing a little bit different in your bag. First of all, most players don't even have that many rackets in their bag, so it really doesn't. It really doesn't matter at all. You know? No, I I think it's like um, I sometimes test myself to see because like I I since I test the rackets all the time and that's my kind of job, right? So right. I. I can bring a like a rainbow of rackets for a match. Like, okay, and I, I since I've been doing this for years, like I, I can just take a racket. You give me a racket. Mm -hmm. For me, it's more important that I like the string. If I don't like the string, I will get a little bit. You know, it's like it's it's the tension is a bit off. Right. Like some, I can be sensitive to that. And you don't feel like you can swing with confidence. That really like because I can at least play on the level where I can like I can have a full swing, full swing. Right. right. But, um, True. But that that can be more like so if it's a good string. Just give me a racket within a normal average range, and I'll I'll play a match. I'll be I'll be fine. You know, I. To me, the biggest thing. That's to, sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I cut you off. No, no. So it, it's not. I agree with you, and it's like uh, on the level where I'm. You know, I'm I'm competing in the ITF like licensed tournaments right. and stuff. I'm, I'm fine to bring like three. I can play with one racket, one match, and one racket, the other match. I'm a bit special case, right. but I think a lot of players could. If if someone blacked them out and said, "Here now you play with the arrow, and the well, next match, or you play with the Wilson Ultra," you know, which people could probably they can. get over that. They can, they definitely yeah. can, and a lot of this is like just a a mental um, trap people fall into, where they overthinking the equipment. Where in reality, they play close to their level with any racket. That's a modern racket. So in other words, you can have like. Let's say you pop all your strings and you have to play with a racket that's completely different from yours. You're probably going to play very, very, very close to your normal level. And people from the outside are not going to be even be able to tell that you're playing different. It's going to look the same. But in your head, sometimes you can exaggerate these things. So, you know, of course, like when you make a mistake, look on your racket. Yeah, it's the racket. It's not me. It's the racket's fault, you know. So everything is like on the equipment. So you were putting out too much importance on the equipment in your own head. 
And I fall into this trap too. You know, this is very normal to happen on the court. So I'm very envious of players that, and I'm sure you know players like this, they can play with anything. I know people like this that are super high level, D1 college, former pros that literally don't care what strings in their racket, don't care what brand it is. They, they don't care. They just play. And I'm very, yeah. I'm very envious of that because I'm definitely not, not like that. Like that. I definitely get the equipment. No, most players are quite spe specific, I would say. Yeah. On high level. But there is, I've seen players like this and I'm very envious of them because um, they don't have to worry about the equipment. They just play with whatever, you know? They can also switch rackets yeah. quite easily without, they can go from one brand to another. Like when I go from one brand to another, it's like a huge ordeal. It's like, like the end of the world. I have to go through so many tests. There's so many like, uh, deliberations in my head. Oh my, what, 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 maybe this is, this one is better or that one is better. Or it, it's just a nightmare, but there's some player who just like, okay, I used to play with Babylon. Now I'm playing with Yonex. Okay. Let's move on. Who cares? Even at the pro tour. Yeah. So it all depends on the, yeah, of course on the personality. Um, you do see some more, um, racket doubts now on, on the tour than before. Like people are very much more into experimenting with strings and, yeah. and for them, it makes a lot more sense than for for rec players like this right. is, uh, this can be different like for example you did a video recently with uh, Shelton and his massive serve yeah. and this is interesting serve technique quite and he's a huge guy he's like such a big not so maybe crazy tall but like he's a big big dude yes. right um but has a, a very good serve and very good game and now he's semifinals in in the US Open but he's like okay he's testing all the different strings of the Onyx lineup like he's been like okay I'm trying the orange uh, Politor mm -hmm. Pro Rev, Rev Pro, and then I'm trying this one, Politor Pro with the yellow, and now he had the Politor Strike, I think it is in the mains. He's been experimenting the last few months since he switched to Yonix. He's been like all over the place, like with the, his string setup. What does he play with so now? That's interesting to see. Now he's, he's strings, I, I'm just guessing the main, but it looks like a Politor Strike, okay, got which it. is a little bit of a firmer Yonix string, and Politor Pro, which is the slightly softer one in the crosses. That string so has he, gained a lot of popularity yeah. recently, that Politor string. I remember Kyrgios was one, like, he used it always. And I think, yeah. uh, what, was it Osaka used it too, right? Yeah, but she used, uh, yeah, she, in the end, she played with, like, a, a multi-filament. Oh, got it. As well, okay. Like a hybrid. Right. Yeah. Well, that string. Like the, about Kasper Rud, for example. Right. Like there's so many players using it. But I've also seen a trend where a lot of players are switching um, from Babylon to Yonex. Have you seen yep. this? They're picking up. I mean, you can I can probably name 10 players that switched from Babylon to Yonex. And also people are switching to Technofiber. Like, you know, there's some things going on. Like, there's definitely some things going on with the companies. I think Yonex is like one of the best racket companies out there, you know? Like, it's just a... Yeah, they're doing a great job. The, like, quality, con the quality control very good. and the products. Very good. But I can't use them. I try it. I would like to play with it, but I can't. I just tried really hard. I just can't. It's a very muted feeling if you come from uh, from a bubble. I mean, they have different kinds. They have the what was that one? The Kerber one. What's that one called? The core. Which one? Sorry? The Kerber. You know. The... Yeah, the, the spinny spin one. Yeah. Okay, that one That's was one. that one wasn't so muted. It was kind of lively. I still couldn't. I don't like the head shape. I just. No, I know. I know. Listen, I'm completely nuts so, with rackets. Okay, but um, yeah. Anyways, uh, I wish I could play with Yonex, but I can't. No, no, they're good. They're good. Like I'm, I, I also, um, I, I play with like yesterday. I, I play. We played the set. I play with the Eason 100, which I like, and it's an easy racket. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's like I play probably my best tennis with that racket. Um, but then the next session, I can play with something else. Like I, I, I'm not that 
picky. For example, I need to be very open-minded. So I have, now I have some Pacific rackets for tests. So I'm going to string them up Pacific. and play with them the next. Wow. Yeah. What a blast from the past. It's a German company. Yeah, I used yeah. To... they bought the... Um, Fisher's uh, molds, right? The old Fisher from the stick and the uh, Baghdadis. Yeah. I used to play with uh, Pacific string. Oh, yeah? Yeah. They used to have, they back in a, in a, way back in the day, they were making polyester string. I'm talking like 30 years ago. They've been around for a while. But that was a Fisher string or no? No, no. I'm talking about Pacific. I'm, I'm talking about the company Pacific. Oh, yeah. That must have been like, wow, that must have been a long time. Does this still exist? Pacific. Are you talking about Pacific? Yeah. Okay. I'm telling you, this was around like when I was in juniors. My friend, there was one of my friends who who had a deal with Pacific. He was playing with those strings and I played with him for a short little while. And they've been around for a while. These are really, really good. Really good. The German polyester strings are really good. Um, yeah. Kishbaum, Pacific. That. There's other companies like, uh, you know, Weiss Cannon. Vice Cannon, yeah. yeah. They have the Ultra Cable, which is the most spinny string I've tried. Yeah, yeah. it's crazy. Then there's a, uh, there's Polystar. I don't know if you know that. Do you know po yep. Polystar? There's a Germany back in those days. It was some of the, the early polyester Pro. strings. Yeah. Yes, Pro's Pro I think is also German. Pro's Pro. They have uh, Top Spin as well. Top Spin. That's quiet, right. right. Top Spin. I'm t t Germany, like back in those days, crazy. And so many, so many great strings from there. Yeah. I still use German strings. Yeah, they have the factories. Like most strings are made in the same factory. Right. right? So it's like, uh, makes sense. Yeah, like they have good string production there. I will. And uh, See, I'm kind of old school. I will only use German strings. Where a lot of the people around the 2000s, everybody started switching to Luxilon. But I was so stubborn and so sensitive that I always continued to play with German strings. Um, at that time, it was Polystar. And I played with Kirschbaum, but I, I never really adapted to that more modern co-polyester, the more dead feel. I always like that old school, lively polyester from back in the day in Germany, man. That's like, I'm still stuck on that still to this day, you know? Yeah. You're, you're specific, man. Like that's uh very, yeah. There's so many different strings now. Like they're by now I got like a velocity, which is like a, is it biodegradable? That string? Maybe it is like, oh, it's, wow. it's a environmentally focused string. I will try that. I will see, you know, uh, how it goes. A lot of strings are very similar. So when you test strings, it's, it's not going to be, it's going to be very, very minute differences. You need to really get into test. I've tested so many strings, like it's insane, like over the years, but, but yeah, it's, it's very small differences usually in between brands and stuff, but usually with colors, you can see if I, if I see a white string, this string is white. I have a feeling already how it's going to play, right? Because I've, I've, you know, all the white strings I've tested, maybe like 15, 20 white strings over the years, I ha they have a tendency of, they have some similarities to them. Like they might be different in other respects, but they have some similarities. The white string. Yeah. I like white strings are to tend to be more soft, you know, they are quite yeah. soft, usually white strings. I like natural color. Natural color. Yeah, but you, yeah, yeah. But like uh, natural gut strings. What? But no, natural color. That same color that ah, gut okay. has or synthetic gut has, that natural color, I like that color. I don't yeah, like black good. strings. I just don't like the look of it. No. Right now I'm playing with orange strings. It's kind of it's kind of funky. But I like it. Yeah, I think like if you depending on the racket, but like when Hyper G came with Solinko was a huge thing for colleges in the US and stuff. Like they did a great job at getting That's a like great string. Hype players. Yeah, it's a good string. Yeah. It's one of my favorites. Good. Donald Young and stuff. They got these you know, up and coming players. Yeah. And uh and they were smart at the time when there were not that many colors to choose right. to like 
here is a very, very strong green. Mm -hmm. Everybody's going to recognize yeah. it. I mean, now everybody does it, right? Like there's this color string from many brands, but at that time they like took a quite chunky market share mm -hmm. because the string stood out. Like you put it in any racket, you're going to see that green, you know, mm -hmm. it's a smart, smart. Very smart. I remember back in the day they had like, uh, I forget the company name, but they had these strings that had all kinds of colors. Do you remember this one? It had like yeah prism like prints or what? I don't know. Like print, they had like it had like yeah. twenty different colors of string. You put it in your racket and it looked like it looked like a painting or something. It looked like so many different colors. I think it is Prince did it with prism. They had like it had like it looked like the rainbow. Yeah, it's something like, like that. Uh, the racket looked. I remember like, that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Very strange. Very strange. I never properly tried that one. Like I don't know about it, but I never tried it. Yeah. Yeah, I do like testing strings. I do like it. But if you if you're so stuck like for. It, I, I really feel for people like because I talk to a lot of pros as well, like over Instagram or when I'm at the mm -hmm. tournaments. And pros are usually very spe like specific. Some of them are very open and like to discuss. Mm -hmm. But I feel like this string loses tension. I feel like this string is very springy. I feel like this string, um, you know, has like a nice grab, but it hurts my arm. You know, like the pros have same loves similar issues. You know, so they can really into the string. And, and the tension, you know, so they like, they can be even like too much with the tension. And, and also when the time, uh, the, the time, the string, your strings to racket. So some guys that I know, they're like ATP top 50 guys, like, um, you know, I want the strung at four the day before, you know, like the, th that's what they want. Like they are really specific mm -hmm. on how they feel the gear, you know, and, and, um, and and for most like for me i wouldn't care about that for example like you know I test racket strings all the time but i wouldn't be like oh i'm gonna string this at four and let it rest because i have a match in the itf senior store tomorrow you know i'm not gonna do that i'm gonna just bring a bunch of rackets you know so, you know what i do old no. school this is the most old you walk on your racket. Say again <laughs> you walk on your racket. well yes of course i do that sometimes they're too tight but um i will play with my rackets until they break and people oh, don't yeah. people don't realize this because now strings last forever. These modern strings will simply not break. And I have some recreational players that have like the same string job on their rackets for like a year or two years, you know, because it will never break. But back in the day, even polyester used to break quite frequently. So I am still in that old school mindset where I play with the racket until it breaks. So unfortunately, this is not the smartest thing because the modern strings they go dead very fast. They go very, very fast. fast. So you have to restring your rackets more frequently than ever before. But yeah. I don't. No, I, I really feel a dead string. Yeah. Like one of my things that I usually do, uh, I like a I'm very string sensitive in that sense. Yes. Like I, I mean, I, I like many strings. I could have like, okay, a top list of 10, 15 mm -hmm. strings I can easily go and play with. But if I feel that the string is dead, like by, by seeing that the elasticity of the string is gone, like so you push the yeah. string and it doesn't want to snap back into place, that is going to be a very difficult... Well, it can also hurt your arm because there's no give in the string. So you're putting all the tension on your yeah, arm. Right? The string is dead. Like it's, That is one of the biggest problems, I think. A lot of amateurs don't understand that they, they, they play for like six months with a string that's completely gone. Right. There's no elasticity. So their arm takes all the bounds from the True. ball, right? So it's, that's, that's more common problem than the rackets being a culprit. I, I agree with you. And in my experience, the number one, in addition to what you said, uh, uh, the number one problem that I'm seeing here, United States is United States. This might be location specific, but, um, the rackets 
that are strung with the modern strings are strung too tight. And I'm telling you, I test, I take the record from some of the people that I play with, and it's like a freaking board, man. Like it feels like it's 75 pounds on there. Uh, and it's just over stretched. The pull speed on the machines is set wrong. It's not calibrated correctly or something. And I feel like the, when they get the racket from the stringer, the racket's already dead. The string's already dead yeah. before they even hit one ball with it. And it just feels like a, like a board, like a frying pan. No give, nothing. Um, and the weird thing is that even when they request like a low tension, like 45, it still feels like a board. So that to me is like, I don't know what it is. This might be location specific, but I find that it's, it's, it's too tight. And then with the wrong strings that can go into the arm really bad. Yeah, no, no strings, hundred percent. Like people ask me all about the rackets, like some rackets are, uh, arm unfriendly the way they, the weight is centered. Like for example, like I tried an E-Zone 98 tour, the older model. And both, like, Haru also tried it and loved it. And he said oh, he had arm issues after, like, one month, right? Like, he played with it as well. I played with it. I loved this feeling. Like, I loved the power. I loved everything about it. Also arm problems. Because there was, like, a lot of weight in the throat, which made the racket strangely heavy to swing through and also affected you in mm -hmm. some way, right? But stiffness can be put in different locations. So the, the racket, you cannot look at the stiffness. Uh, you have to kind of feel how it feels. Because rackets affect you differently. Some rackets, some people have problems with flexible rackets and that are heavy. Some people have problems with light rackets that are stiff. It's quite different, like based on the racket and stuff. It's not an exact science, in my opinion. Uh, but the string is quite. That's the number one, I think. Like people need to really consider the string choice, right? Because you know, I can take a racket that I like and I put like a really stiff string at you know fifty three pounds, which is not that high, but still pretty high. And I will feel it. I will feel like that that string has very little give. It's very boardy. It's going to hurt me. And then if I take maybe the same string, I go 47 pounds or 49 pounds. Maybe it opens up a little bit. Or I take another string. I can string it at a pretty high 51 pounds and it feels fine. You know, so it's you have to be a bit smart with how you high you string. And I think for most players, like my tip is just start quite low. And then you see if you know can control the ball with that and learn to control the ball with that. If you learn to control the ball with a lower tension, that's also going to gain your tennis because you're gaining like the understanding of adding spin and stuff. For a lot of rec players, I think that could be very good, you know, generally. I agree with you. Like, I think it's highly dependent on the string material, the tension. So if you're talking about like synthetic gut or natural gut, maybe even yeah, maybe fine, even yeah. some of the very responsive mono, monofilament old school polyester strings, those, those can be strung tighter. But if you... um get a like let's say you you play with like alu power because you saw that um that the most players in the top 100 use that string and you put that string and you tell the stringer i'll give you like 58 you know things come think thing comes back like 65 from the stringer because the stringer machine is over calibrated and now you're playing with a string that's already dead and you strung it too tight you overstretch the thing on the stringer the thing is like a board you're bound to have problems with your arm uh, while that same type of st string job on a different string might be just fine. So it's like the choices you make when you select strings, very, very important, extremely important. And there's vast differences, as you know, in the polyester strings between the monofilaments and the copolymers co co and all that. And um, you just have to find something that you like, stick with it and uh, 
the tension has to be comfortable for you because I agree with you 100%. I feel like the strings, the tension is probably more of a factor for pain than the actual racket. I agree with you. Yep. I, I, I 100% believe so because I think a lot of players, and I do these consultations all the time. Yeah. I do them online. I do them with players I meet on the clubs. And a lot of players, like they, they string, they have a powerful racket. And since they can't control the ball with enough spin, because mm -hmm. they play it kind of flat, they go really high in tension. So they have now a power racket, which is quite stiff. That could be fine. And then they have a really high tension and it's with like 57, 59 pounds. And they like come with the elbow brace, classical, like this 55 year old guy with mm -hmm. elbow brace, right? You see them all the time, right? And and I'm like, hey, you know, you should really try to go, they can't be that this 559 mm -hmm. pounds with this, like, then you have to go for a multi-filament or a gut, synthetic gut, mm -hmm. right? You have to go for a softer string because otherwise it, it's got, this kind of problem is gonna keep popping up. Sure. Like, and you see a lot of them, like they, they keep getting the same issue. They, they get, get off tennis and a lot of them have this idea that, oh, I now I just stopped playing tennis for three months. And I'm like, right. you shouldn't have to stop playing tennis for three months. This is not a good thing. They go back, use the same racket, then they stop again for three months. I'm like, what is, it's not, no, no sense at all, right? I used to play with a Wilson Hyperhammer 5.2, which is 95. Yeah, it's And then I switched to Babola Pure Drive, which is 100. And I always thought like 95 is my high, my size. It's my, that was like what I play with pretty much. I wouldn't say in juniors, we're probably a little bit smaller, probably like 90, but like 95 was like my perfect uh, racket head size. You know, remember the old pro staff was that size. Most rackets were. Yeah, I love that. That was my, my, yeah. my racket when I, when I got like that. Most rackets were that size and then kind of Babylon broke through with the original pure drive and they kind of changed the game and then everybody else started doing 100 inches, right? And Prince, I guess, was doing it before with oversize, uh, with 110. But once I switched to uh, 100, and then for fun, I did a video like where I was playing with old rackets. Man, I tell you, I can I cannot play with 95 ever again because now I've gotten used to nine uh, to 100. So it's like it's basically it's your preference that's gonna mess you up. Okay. Um, so like, but it's also like. For most rec players, like it's like I, I test everything, right? Like I played with like a session with a mid-size racket with an XATP player, like he's older yeah. than 50, but but still strikes a yeah. good ball. Um, super fun to hit with a mid-size racket, but I don't go to a competitive tournament like I played this weekend, you know, with a mid-size racket. There's no chance. Like I, I, I will be eaten up, right? I need a 98 or right. 100. Like this is uh, this because like this, the lack of power you get if you play someone who has decent strokes, like on a high, I mean, this is pretty high level. I would say I'm playing 5-0. Yeah. Like, the quality was 5-0, I guess, right? Something like that. Um, and then you, they will, they have enough tennis to, if your shots are too weak, you can't put, push them back, you're gone, right? So you need a little bit of help from the racket in that sense, right? I agree. I do think uh, a larger head size provides a lot of benefits. Um, that's why, I, yeah, 100%. I think it's, it's definitely easier to play with easier playability no doubt about it and i feel that in my game like i can't ever play with 95 ever again i'm done like i have to play with 100 now yeah yeah and also like you're, you're gonna get so much more out of your serve 
for example, with the type of pure drive or, or stuff like, or an ESO 100 yeah. or whatever, like you're gonna get more of the, if, if the service is very important to you, it is. I think it's it's worth considering. Right? Um, what are the... Yeah, I know in your case, you, 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 like your, you have a very well, good serve. So. It's also the case where I you can't have... really move. So if I don't have my serve, I don't have anything, you know? You can throw me in a garbage. Yeah. But uh, have you heard about the Bubba Razor? Yeah. 137. The race, the big one. That, that thing is, that, I think that's my future. Something like that. <laughs> that's going to be my future. I want to, but it's funny, like, because uh, I was always like a little bit like, because I started with the 95s and I always enjoyed the mids and then, uh, you know, being that generation and then this transition to bigger head sizes took a long time. Yeah. Right? I, I had to really adjust a little bit how I think about tennis or what I enjoy, more spin I put on the ball and stuff on stuff like that. Um, but th then like I have like my friend Sergio, he runs an academy here. He's 53 maybe. And he played also ATP, was 100, 200 wow. in the world, something like that, when, on his uh, prime, I think. I'm not mistaken. A good player, has an, his own academy here. And he's just like, he plays with 104 blade, like a Wilson. He's the waiting up, like, because he needs a the Serena racket. It's, it's the lighter than Serena. Serena's is a bit uh, okay. heavier, but uh, he's using a lighter one, and then he adds weight to Got it. it. And it's a little bit longer, but it's a 290 gram racket mm. from the start. So it's very light. 104 square inch head size and he hits with guys who plays futures a friend of mine who yeah. plays futures who i train with sometimes and he plays really well but he's like i cannot believe how much easier it is to play with this racket <laughs> compared to his old rackets which was so demanding right yeah it's true it's very true like as you as your athletic abilities decline you need more help from the racket no doubt about it yeah for sure uh now we got stuck into rackets which happens with me sadly but um <laughs> Let me ask you about your uh, online courses uh, because um, most recreational players struggle with something. And li like, I think the things are usually quite like there's, there's the fundamentals, right? And that's mm -hmm. usually what we all struggle with. I struggle with yeah. whoever, right? Um, so who are they for? Like, what is the level kind of thing? Like, could I go use your courses? What, how, how does it work? Well, I have different products that I that I sell outside of YouTube. So on my website, intuitivetennis.com, you'll see courses where you can learn a stroke in its entirety um, in chronological order. So it really could be for anyone. It could be for even a high-level player where, you know, maybe you have issues with your take back or your toss or your loading position or your contact point. or So you can use that to improve. Um, or recalibrate each part of whatever stroke there is. I have a course on every stroke. Um, so it's the courses in itself can be for anyone who's willing to work on their technique because they're very detailed, they're very in-depth, and they're, they're laid out in a chronological order, very easy to understand. So that's, that's a course. But I also have a membership site. And on this membership site, a lot of people don't, understand the distinction between the membership side and the courses because there are actually courses on my membership site as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so the membership side is, has a lot of features and I initially designed it kind of like my own version of Patreon where I was going to have like some bonus content and some of my YouTube videos like ad free. That was the initial idea. But now is is morphed into something really crazy where I have so much value that I'm giving away for like a very low monthly membership price, very low. 
It's like less less than a, mem- a Netflix membership per month, and there's even a seven day free trial. And within that, you get access to like my entire catalog of, of videos. Okay, and you also get a lot of courses that are very specific. For example, there's a there's and I I kind of shouldn't call these courses because the way my membership site is set up is very much set up like Netflix. So we can call it more like collections of videos. So I'll just give you a few examples of what kind of videos on the, are on there. For example, there's one collection of videos that's titled Problems at the Rec Level. And I have featured some of these videos, these type of videos on my YouTube channel. But here on my membership site, I go into extreme detail. So the Problems at the Rec Level collection of videos has everything uh, for the forehand, the backhand, the two-handed backhand, the, the slice, the volleys, the overhead, the serve, is these little um, categories, okay? And with each, within each category, I list all the problems that recreational players experience because I have a lot of experience at the rec level. And you can go in, you can go in there and you can find the, maybe recognize a problem that you have. Maybe it's a toss, maybe it's the timing, whatever it may be you'll find the answer. Then there's many, many other collection of videos that I have on my membership sites. There's literally thousands of videos. Um, I also have, give people more uh, personal access to me. So if I do a monthly Q&A that I answer questions in depth, I have a private WhatsApp group. I also give people the opportunity to get discounts on my private coaching so if you are an active member of my membership site you automatically get a hundred dollars off on a private lesson and uh, you also can get discounts on other forms of coaching and there's other benefits of the website such as you know you get my entire youtube catalog ad free and you also get access to like you know unlisted deleted videos uh, on YouTube, and also because I record so much in advance, months in advance, you get access to my unreleased videos, videos that are going to be coming out in the future on YouTube. So, on top of all that, you also get courses like, for example, um, the Swing Path Mastermind, Roll of the Wrist, Style versus Fundamentals are courses that are inside of the membership that you get access to. So, it's something that I'm building because my the intuitive stroke courses that i've done i pretty much completed the series so i have all those courses already done and those are separate because they're separate from the membership site but the membership site is something that i'm going to be focusing on in the future i want this to be something that can that can be quite amazing because it's basically can encompass everything that um i'm trying to teach you about the game of tennis like limitless information to get you better and on top of that access access to me that you might not have and my youtube channel or instagram or whatever so i don't do uh, that much marketing for it um but if you're interested you know go to intuitivetennis.com and check out the seven day uh, free trial it's something that um has gotten a lot um, better over the years and something that I'm going to continue to build over and in the near future. 
I I like the idea of membership sites. Uh, I I think it's it's fun to work with. I like the the subscription model because yeah. you, you it's a set money you pay. So you, you like if you're paying ten, fifteen dollars, whatever, five dollars, um, you 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 know what you have to pay the expenditure. You get a seven day free trial. I, I do the same with my Patreon. I I actually like the Patreon because you're building a community. Uh, I, Patreon as platform, I don't know. I mean, I I haven't tried any other okay. platforms, but I I like having the membership site. I think it works. You can give more of yourself. Like I have chat function. Like, I mean, you have a WhatsApp group. You get so much more value for your small, pretty small investment. It's true. Uh, that I think it, it, it's it's a great thing for, for people. I will definitely check it out because I think um, that that's also one very good way to to support your favorite creator because it's not like a really expensive thing. It's like a, you're paying a few bucks a month right. and you're getting lots of free content, free access. You do. You, and, you do get uh, a lot of value. And you, and I think, like for me, like I I subscribe to Netflix. I never watch Netflix. Is like, that right? Yeah, uh, I don't really watch it either. So I, I could easily like remove that and rather subscribe to something else. And there's people Substacks and stuff now. So I think it's the right time to do it. And uh, and I will uh, I will check it out. The sure. thing is, like, what when people ask me, like, why not just put all that on on YouTube? Like, people don't realize that like, you don't have that much freedom on YouTube. Like, you can't just just throw stuff there against the wall like youtube is very specific in what works or doesn't work and if you start putting garbage out there and your views start to dip they can like ruin your channel like people don't realize yeah, how difficult it is to run a youtube channel so for example i have a documentary on my website uh where i gained weight on purpose and then lost weight in a two-month span and i recorded myself every day on what i ate and how i lost the weight it's a. It was like a over an hour documentary. I can't put that on YouTube. Nobody's gonna watch that. More like blog style. So like, I can do on my website whatever I want. I can put that up there. I can do like a video that's like a minute and a half. I can do a series of videos that are a minute and a half. Blast them all out in one day. Give them to the people in one day so they have them. I don't have that freedom on YouTube. You can't just do whatever you want, as you know, because the algorithm is very yeah. specific, and. If you want to have success on YouTube and not kill your channel, you have to be smart. So that's why uh, people, when they run their own um, content on their own sites, they have more freedom to do whatever they want. And I think that's I think that's that's great. Yeah, I'm I'm the same. Like, so my Patreon is my Notepad, so I'm completely right. raw and open and right. completely unedited. And if you want to see, like, these rackets might be revealed or or right. some the first impressions of something, I do that. Right. Like, I I feel like I can just write a blog piece, publish a video, yeah. uh, put some images. While with YouTube, you really have to think about where you're putting out there. Like, it it's mm -hmm. like like you said, it, you put a lot of hours into a video and it totally tanks and it it hurts your channel. So it's not really no, like it that. Hurts a lot, man. Like if you or it, maybe one video won't do much, but if you start like doing bad content, this can have a really bad effect on your channel. Like you can kill your channel. Like if you start doing really bad numbers because the algorithm is like it's. If somebody once said it's like a, the algorithm is actually really dumb. Like it's very simplistic. Like okay, like they don't care about this channel anymore. There's no more views. Let's not suggest it that much anymore. And now you're like, you know, it creates a cycle. So I do think the YouTube is very difficult, and you have to be very careful with what you put out there. Yeah, hundred you know? percent. I'm gonna let you go and pick up your daughter. I okay, <laughs> love talking to you, man. You're you're a no problem. You're a source of wisdom and, Anytime, and also man. a chill guy. Anytime.
people really enjoy your podcast. So I think you're doing really good. And uh, I'm your number one fan. There's a lot of tennis podcasts out there. And yeah. you're my number one. You're my favorite. Thanks, man. This is what I, I should I tune into you more than the other guys. I'll tell you that much. I appreciate that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks, man. You're, right, you're, you're nice. helping out. Sure. You take care, man. Have a nice one. You too. Say hi to your daughter and, and take care. Sure will. Take care. Bye-bye.